Hi guys, just a quick uh, intro, I guess, to this episode. So before we get into it, this is a long episode, but it is well worth listening to all two hours of it. I had my friend Laura on, long-term friend who um, has worked in a number of kind of fields of psychology um, to talk about different cases, um, syndromes, disorders named after cities and why. And it ended up being not an hour, like I thought it was over two hours. Um, We talk about all these different syndromes. I think there was a list of about 10. Um, Laura is one of the most intelligent people I know. I've known her since I was 12. Um, She's really come out of her shell as an adult. She's just one of the most intelligent, funny people, even though, you know, she doesn't get a whole lot of a chance to laugh in this episode. Um, She's got the best laugh ever. She's very introspective. Um, She's an amazing friend to have. And um, she also, at the end, I'm just going to say it now in case you don't make it to the end because it's quite long, um, she promotes her new podcast. So I've brought her on for a bit of practice and to introduce her to you. So please listen to it. It starts tomorrow, Monday, um, in about 24 hours from when this goes up. And it's called The Serial Monogamist. So search it on your podcast platform of choice at the moment it is in showing up in Spotify if you like Laura's insights and things like that um yeah I hope that you enjoy this episode also at the end we talk about a few warning signs to look for in regards to episode 94 the Caroline Crouch episode um love bombing narcissists just to kind of add a little bit more on to the end so I hope that you enjoy this bonus episode hello Hello. So I will introduce this episode first. So I just want to say that this is a special bonus episode that I'm bringing the listeners for episode 95 of Unknown Passage, a podcast that tells the stories of those who have gone missing or have been murdered abroad. But this particular episode is a different kind of one. And I've brought on someone who will be able to I guess, flesh out some of the things that we'll go through. So first of all, I want to introduce my guest host, Laura. Hello. (laughs) Welcome, Laura. So Laura and I have known each other since the first day of year seven. Yes. Yeah. Um, And at an all-girls school in Melbourne. Mm -hmm. And we had one of our first like overseas trips together as well, didn't we? Yes, we did. We did. (laughs) New Caledonia. And um, I have um, I have a New Caledonia episode coming up, so I want to bring you on for that so we can regale people with some of our tales of that particular school trip. <laughs> there um, were a few tales, yep. <laughs> <laughs> so, Laura, I want you to kind of introduce yourself, who you are. Um, I've brought Laura on as well because she started a new podcast and I've bring her on for practice, for talking, even yeah. though she doesn't have an issue with that, neither do I. Um, <laughs> but, like, who you are what you studied, um, where you've travelled and kind of what you do. Yeah. Um, Yeah, so my name's Laura. Um, In terms of my, you know, more professional sort of background, I've done, uh, you know, a Bachelor in Psychology and my Honours in Psychology as well. So I've been very drawn to all things psychology over the years. Um, I worked in high schools teaching psychology for about 10 years and then moved over to psych education in emergency services. Um, so, yeah, that's sort of, I guess, my my major passion. 
Um, in terms of other things, um, also really drawn to travel as well. So I took a big trip in 2017 and did quite a bit of solo travel through Europe, which was uh, a really amazing opportunity. Um, what else? Um, anything, um, <laughs> anything else I've missed? I don't know. Yeah, you've, you've been through Asia because your brother was working there for a while. Yes. What, yes, what, that's what, true. What kind of introduced you to psychology? Because I will say that you're one of the most stable people I've known and <laughs> <laughs> you've kind of always been quite level, even through school, although I have said on the introduction that kind of watching you come out of your shell as a, you know, as an adult mm-hmm. has been quite amazing because you were quite, you know, shy but um, yeah. conscientious yeah, I- student. Oh, yeah. So I get that a bit, actually. A, a lot of um, people that are like family and friends have sort of been like, oh, you know, you yeah, really blossomed in those later years. <laughs> um, of, you know, I'll just sort of throw myself into a social situation. I guess it's just um, really started to enjoy getting to know people. And I think as I um, got older, I realised that when you um, sort of open yourself up to people, generally I find people are pretty receptive to it. Um, yeah. It was just those early sort of steps. Um, Yeah, and I think probably travel helped with that as well. Um, I sort of met a few people that had done a bit of traveling and I do really like trying new things um, and seeing whether I sink or swim. Um, Most of the time it's been swim so far, but (laughs) (laughs) it continues. As for my draw to psychology, I think, um, yeah, I think I've always, as I've read more and more about psychology, it's really interesting. I, I almost view it as, a jigsaw puzzle and every time I learn something new it's like I'm putting another piece of the jigsaw puzzle into place so I can kind of understand myself others and the world a little bit better and I think that's really always been the draw for me I've felt very like magnetized towards it um so yeah just sort of always followed that I suppose but I'm glad that I give the impression that I'm stable um (laughs) I mean you're you have one of the nicest kind of level families from people I've known like growing up um (laughs) and I mean I know this is like a personal question but have you yourself like ever suffered with Mm -hmm. depression or anxiety or anything like that yeah, I've um, pro- not to the point of, you know, clinical, but um, yeah, I've definitely had points in my life that have been super challenging and that have really tested me. Yeah. <laughs> um, really, yeah, probably a few points in my life that have been really, really testing. And um, I think that's part of uh, what's so amazing about psychology as well, to sort of you know, read about other people's stories, other people's journeys and realise that, you know, you're, you're not alone uh, in yeah. that experience. And indeed for people who haven't experienced that, you know, life actually continues, you know, it, it happens and it's, it's very challenging for everyone in different ways. Um, so, you know, the likelihood that you'll experience, you know, something really challenging in your life is, is very high. Um so yeah, yeah. That's Have sort you of ever thought story. about um, going into kind of um, practice as a psychologist? I mean, what did you enjoy about teaching as a um, as a high school teacher? Um, I, I really love working with people, and I've been very drawn to jobs where you're interacting with people, um, and that's yeah, been in, in a variety of different ways, whether, it, you know, starting out young, it would have been hospitality and then sort of drawn to teaching and tutoring, um, even, you know, thinking about becoming a yoga instructor, you know, that's, again, very people-oriented. Um, but, yeah, I think with high school teaching, I just 
because I'm so passionate about that that content, I'm I'm very excited to pass on. Uh, like when I learn something, I'm I'm normally just I won't shut up about it. It's like, and the best thing about teaching is that. I'd be passionate about something and literally none of those people could walk away. Like I got to just keep going on and on about stuff that I thought <laughs> was interesting and they couldn't leave. Like, and they were, they were captive. In a, we're going to talk about that in that episode actually. So maybe this is a form of um, one of the ones. <laughs> um, so I guess I should explain what we're doing for this episode. So a couple of months ago I came up with the idea because I wanted to bring Laura on. Um, to kind of discuss some things she may know. I'm putting her on the spot a bit with these things because I'm kind of like when I sent her this document um, with some research, I was kind of like, yeah, can you flesh out like all of these points? And she's like, <laughs> she's probably like, oh, shit. Um, but I, came <laughs> yeah. up, I came up with the idea because many psychological syndromes or some people call them disorders or some people call them like phenomena, I guess, um, have been named after places, which I guess the term is eponymous named after a place um so i've i've written down like a list of a bunch of them um that i've come up with a few of them i'd never heard of before um just to kind of go through with laura and what they are what they um what are the symptoms of them who do they affect mainly um and you know i've given this to laura a while back so she's said oh I've fleshed out a few things so don't feel too on the spot if you can't if you don't have anything to say Laura (laughs) no worries (laughs) so I just want to say I found a really good study by this guy called Ernest Abel at Wayne State University in the United States and it was called a note on psychological disorders named after cities and it was written in September 2014 and this actually helped me to a couple of them, what's out there is actually wrong. This guy is like an expert um, in this field, which is a really interesting thing. So I've he kind of gave me most of these um, and I've kind of fleshed them out with other studies and things. So should we get mm. into it? Yes, definitely. Cool. So the first one we're going to talk about is probably the most famous one. Um, it's a term that's kind of used all the time. People use it in instances where it doesn't really make sense to use it. <laughs> I think... <laughs> A lot of people are saying that people in Melbourne have Stockholm syndrome and maybe that's like a of the last year and that's, mm. yeah. But um, so what is Stockholm syndrome? So Stockholm syndrome is a psychological condition in which hostages of captives form a bond with their captors, which isn't really a, a normal path to take when someone's keeping you captive. And often it results in them refusing to go to the police about them, to um, go to court to testify against them um, or to cooperate in any way. And these days they often use it to describe abusive relationships in which the abused party continues to go back to the captive um, and to defend the abuser, you know, against other people. But that's actually not what it comes from. So, Stockholm syndrome comes from a case in 1973, which happened in Stockholm, believe it or not. My neighbor, Mark, he was like, where does Stockholm syndrome come from? And I said, (laughs) Stockholm. So two two guys basically held up a bank in Stockholm, Sweden, um, and they held four hostages that worked at the bank in the bank vault for six days. And ultimately throughout the course of them being kept captive, it has elements of Stockholm syndrome, but what people don't really point out is that it actually has elements of um, Lima syndrome, which we'll be talking about like in a little bit. So ultimately the captors were very sympathetic to the captives in this, um, although people don't really refer to Lima syndrome 
in res- in response to this because it's mainly the captives were very close to the captors they were more close to them than the police they really saw it as the police will come in here and kill all of us and actually the captors are keeping us safe at this point in time and once they were all like released because they basically threw like a um a kind of mustard gas in there and ultimately arrested the two guys the four people who had been kept hostage raised money for their defense they visited them in prison um and they wouldn't testify against them in court and it's named Stockholm Syndrome because this case really, like, hit the world news. Um, and I found kind of comparisons where they said that with this, psychiatrists referred it, they compared it to shell shock, which was mm-hmm. the term used back in the day before it was PTSD. Um, shell shock was generally started, like, in World War One. soldiers um, who were taken in as prisoners of war kind of had to be kind of had to be close to their abductors mm-hmm. um, because they relied on them for survival. And later on, um, the Patty Hearst case, she was, I don't know if you know that case, Laura, but it's, she was kind of like a rich heiress to the mm-hmm. Hearst fortune. She was abducted by this random kind of rebel group in California in like the 70s mm-hmm. and she ended up joining them um, and being involved in all these shootouts and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, yeah, so... I thought like you could kind of talk about that a little bit because Stockholm syndrome, they often it's people don't feel sorry. I think for a lot of people who are diagnosed Stockholm syndrome, but you kind of should because they, they believe that it's like a coping mechanism Mm -hmm. to not only keep yourself alive, but to process trauma. So yeah. 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 So, um, yeah, so it's definitely like an, in the way I'm sort of piecing it together, it's a bit of like an adaptive strategy. So if you think about, you know, you've got your fight, flight, freeze response, right? So you've got your normal level of functioning and then above that, like if you go sort of fight, flight, that's like hypervigilant, anxiety, panic, fight, run away. That's kind of like your increased level of functioning or alertness if that kind of, does that sort of make sense? You've got like that one end. And then below that, on the other end of the spectrum, you have like hypovigilance, which is like almost if you imagine the opposite. So it's your um, shutting down, um, becoming maybe frozen in fear. It's almost like a playing dead response. There's a whole bunch of behaviours that go with it. But that's because like they a, don't. They often talk about fight or flight, but I've read like that there's also freeze, which they don't often talk yes. about a lot. And is that what that is? Yeah, so what happens is um, freeze normally happens when you cannot escape or when, you're, when your body and brain perceive that if you were to fight or flee, you will be killed, then you will switch into a freeze response or a hypovigilant, which is sort of sounds very similar to what the Stockholm syndrome is yeah. in terms of, okay, well, I'm, if I try and get out of this, um, I'm not going to live. Yeah. Um, I think what's really interesting about this is I um, – you know, I noticed that it continues after the threat supposedly has vanished in terms of once they're released um, and yeah. once the, what I think you said that the, um, was it the captors were in prison or whatever, they're visiting them. Yeah. Um, so it, it's interesting to see it prolonged uh, beyond that threat moment, if yeah. that sort of makes sense, um, is, is what's surprising to me about it. But again, probably still an adaptive response because, you know, those those captors still exist in the world. And so it's essentially that freeze response is also like 
um, can be compared to sometimes attend and befriend. So we can also survive a situation if we try and make friends with our enemies um, sometimes as well. So that that may be or may explain why that response continues even after their their life is supposedly not threatened. The the threat still lingers, if that makes sense. What did you call that, attend and befriend? Yeah, yeah. Um, I've never heard that before, but that's, yeah. Yeah, so I actually um, learned that from a colleague who's a psychologist. So it's yeah, part of the – it can be part of the fr- – like that that lower, lower level sort of freeze response or can be part of that hypovigilance. But, yeah, essentially trying to befriend someone so that you can increase your chance of survival. And it's actually very common as well um, – it's actually a very common female dynamic, although it's not exclusive to females. But if you think about when a female's in a threatening situation, if they try and fight or run away, um, often they might be in a situation where they're, they're less able to fight back or they will be more likely killed if they respond in that way. So tendon befriend is also very um, very common response among females as, a, as an adaptive survival sort of strategy yeah because I listen I listened to this um psychologist who said that women are interested in people and men are interested in things um and I mm-hmm. guess that ties in with like women's ability to have empathy for other people which is I guess not something that you see is that how you tie how do you tie in Stockholm syndrome because they use it a lot with domestic abuse these days and um, Mm. people are diagnosed with Stockholm syndrome why does it continue on once they're the threat is kind of gone is because that person is still in your realm I, I mean, this is my opinion, but I would suspect that, yes, I mean, if you've had something that's like, let's say, really life-threatening, um, that the threat probably for that person does still remain after that moment has ended, um, yeah. you know, that the presence of it is always there. I mean, even if you're the person who threatened you is in jail, I mean, I imagine if you'd been in a situation where, you know, you, you thought you were going to die, yes, they're in jail, but, you know, I, I'm sure you feel the presence of that probably every day. Um, after that moment so um, that would be my suspicion and I guess that ties in with also when in coercive control um, relationships when um, one person controls the finances and things like that Mm -hmm. like you you kind of have to almost befriend the captive for survival yeah yep yeah definitely yeah so that's the first one now, the second one is very different. Um, I, I think I had, like, an element of this. Um, <laughs> that's, that's what I had in my notes. <laughs> I was like, did I have you? this? <laughs> so it's really funny, actually. So the next one we're talking about is Paris syndrome. And Paris syndrome first became prevalent and psychiatrists named it. Um, a Japanese psychiatrist working at a hospital in um, Paris, France, Hiro, Hiroaki Ota, they coined the term Paris syndrome in the 1980s. Now, Paris syndrome is very strange. Um, so it's usually affects Japanese tourists, but it's actually known to affect tourists from China, Singapore and South Korea as well. It's usually Asian tourists. And what happens is they visit the city of Paris, which is, you know, one of the most famous cities in the world. And the 
expectation of what Paris is going to be like from, you know, you know, mm. photos and portraits and um, films is it doesn't live up to the reality of what they see, mm-hmm. which actually I, one of my friends like hated Paris, which I like don't understand. He thought it was like gross. And I hear this from quite a lot of people. Um, so basically it comes down to how the French and I don't have an issue with this because I've never experienced this being in Paris and I've gone there twice, how the French aren't very receptive to tourists and the Parisians Mm -hmm. in particular, which I think is like bullshit anyway. Um, So it particularly affects Japanese tourists because according to an expert in this quote, in Japanese shops, the customer is king unquote. And it doesn't make sense to Japanese people that the French people and the Parisians don't, necessarily treat the customer like king so they ultimately Mm. a lot of them end up in the hospital because they get heart palpitations dizziness giddiness shortness of breath and sometimes hallucinations um and so there was a kind of bullshit and I've read the article put out there by the BBC in 2006 that the Japanese embassy in Paris had a 24-hour hotline for those suffering from um Paris syndrome which is really otherwise known as culture shock but that's bullshit there was no hotline the BBC just wrote this big um really crappy like full of lies article um so around annually there's around 20 cases a year in Paris of Paris syndrome um and most of them are Japanese and um in one year there's usually around four Japanese tourists that have to be repatriated back to Japan from Um, Paris so in layman's terms Paris syndrome can be thought of as a severe form of culture shock or almost homesickness Um, Mm. and I thought it was really interesting because like I always wanted to go to Paris and I remember my mum saying to me that when she first went there she like walked around in a daze like because of all the amazing architecture and amazing Mm. things you see Um, and when I first went there I was the same like it was almost like a giddiness but not in mm-hmm. like a bad way. And then I went back again um, about 18 months later and I kind of had it all over again. So I think I have like the opposite. But what are your kind of thoughts on Paris syndrome? Mm. Um, I think it's like really interesting that it's like it appears to be very uh, Asia specific. Um, and when I was reading it, I mean, I've spent most time, um, you know, of the relevant countries in Japan um, and I think about, uh, you know, how generally, and again, this is generalisation, but, you know, people pretty like meek and mild and quiet and respectful and that sort of thing. And I, I could, I can see that being a shock yeah. um, for, for people. Um, I do think as well, there's an interesting role in terms of that expectations versus reality and how much, I mean, surely in, if you take all the movies and tv shows and all that sort of stuff the surely the city that has been um you know um i guess pumped up the most it it must be paris surely um so in terms of the hype that must be around it for people um yeah i can sort of um i can see how you know if you're if if you're so overwhelmingly excited about something then i think no matter what it is (laughs) the reality is probably not quite gonna match up and it might be a bit of a a bit of a shock is sort of my what I was thinking when I was reading it yeah I didn't realize you'd been to Japan um Mm. and I have quite a lot of listeners who have either lived in Japan or 
love Japan. And I know that like their culture is very, it's very orderly. And it's also from my podcast doing it, there's very low crime rates um, and people, their train system's efficient and everything works on time. And then Mm -hmm. I guess the polar opposite of that, when you think of Paris is um, really crazy drivers because Paris traffic is like insane. Um, People are very like passionate in that part of the world and make their opinions like known. Um, Mm -hmm. There's not a lot of like order to places like that. People really focus on not um, work and work and work because in in Japan there's like a term that refers to working yourself to death. And Yes, I've heard of this. Yeah. Yeah. And in um and it's kind of seen as like a honor an a honorary thing to do. Whereas I was just reading the other day about how um parts of Western Europe, they generally spend 20 hours of the day chilling. Um and they don't <laughs> focus, which I know from having like clients that are in Spain and um the Mediterranean, the focus mm. is generally on family and enjoyment of life. And I guess mm. my thinking was you couldn't get to more polar opposite places yes. than yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. I yeah, did you like Japan? Yeah, I did. I really liked it. Actually, when I did my big trip, it was the first place I went, and part of that was because just through talking to people. Um, yeah, that idea of like, you know, it being safe and clean and very orderly. Uh, it was a very sort of friendly place to start my travels and gain a bit of confidence before I continued on. And um, you travelled by yourself there? Yeah. Did yep, you find did. Um, Japan um, friendly to female soloid travellers? Uh, yeah, it was in that, um, you know, I, I don't, I never felt, I never felt unsafe actually. Um and, yeah, so in that way it was. In in other ways it was sometimes a bit challenging in terms of the language barrier, but it was less stressful because I also wasn't, do you know what I mean, like it, because I felt safe. It's like, okay, well, I'm having trouble with this thing, but, you know, I, there wasn't that underlying threat that sort of might loom over you in, in other, you know, parts of the world. But, yeah, because um, we've been to Paris, a couple, um, Japan a couple of times on the podcast and generally those cases are people who have become known to the person does something to them. They're not generally like attacked mm-hmm. and murdered by a random person um, who just breaks yep. into their house or anything like Have you been to Paris? I have, yes. Yep. Did you like Paris? I did like Paris. It was definitely different to what I thought it would be. Um, And there were like spots, uh, I can't remember where in particular, but there were spots of Paris that were very, okay, this is the the Paris that I had in mind, but the rest of it was quite different. Um, And I was also very surprised to see that uh, I felt like everything was quite spread out and I got the impression from movies and that sort of stuff that you walk everywhere. Um, But then I'm finding myself having to, like, you know, catch a subway to go to, you know, the other. Yeah, so I think I was surprised by that. Yeah, the metro system, like, I find it really easy to get around Paris because they've got a similar system to London, the tube where it's all Mm. kind of colour colour coordinated but um I loved Paris like because I love architecture and I really just felt oh I'm in Paris and all of this stuff but then I had the second time I went I I think I've talked about on another podcast but I was out one night in a really seedy part of Paris with some people from my hostel and we kind of had like a run-in with some really like scary guys and I was like Mm -hmm. oh yeah this is the Paris like that people live (laughs) like yeah um, I actually did find the men 
particularly intense. Like yes. I think especially walking around on your own, yeah. um, that was, you know, uh, I think uh, people sort of make a beeline for you, whereas most other yeah. places, you know, people wouldn't approach you. But, um, and yeah, usually that- um, you don't yeah. like in – in documentaries about Paris, you don't get um, – I'm thinking of that show Emily in Paris, which I haven't watched. Um, mm. I, I, You kind of don't get in that visuals of how many people, like, harass you um, to buy yeah. things and yeah. that they're at every – and I got that in Rome as well. As much as I loved Rome, I felt like you were a target kind of mm. wherever you were, they knew that you were a tourist. Um, yes. But, yeah, I just thought – well, I thought while we're going through this, like, if you've been to any of the places, yeah, so. Yeah, yeah. Cool. So the next one is Jerusalem syndrome. Now I actually have a case on my spreadsheet to do at some point of a man that they believe he's missing. Um, they believe he was he was a victim of Jerusalem syndrome. So what is Jerusalem syndrome? So according to the BBC, quote, Jerusalem syndrome is a psychotic state or a break from reality, often linked to religious experiences. Sufferers become paranoid. They see and hear things that aren't there. They become possessed and obsessed and sometimes they disappear, unquote. So Around the year 2000, um, doctors from, I think this mental health centre is in Tel Aviv, um, they reported seeing around 100 tourists a year with the syndrome, Jerusalem syndrome. So it's more common than Paris syndrome. And I don't believe that it generally focus, it affects a certain, it doesn't affect a certain ethnicity or anything like that. Um, it most commonly does affect Christians and some Jews, but usually not many Muslims. Um, and I guess being in Jeru- Israel, you would, you know, see that. So um, Jerusalem syndrome was a for- is a form of psychosis and the British Journal of Psychiatry writes, quote, in a city that conjures up a sense of the holy, the historical and the heavenly, unquote. It generally affects people who already have an existing mental health issue, generally schizophrenia or bipolar. I guess schizophrenia, you're more likely to actually experience hallucinations um, than other kind of mental health disorders. Um, And often that mental health disorder is why they're there in the first place in Israel. Um, So there's a case study of a man, a US tourist with schizophrenia who started getting it in his head that he was fixated on Israel um, and he decided that he was the biblical character Samson Um, and he went to Israel and his focus, this fixation that he'd had was moving the, so the Wailing Wall is a really famous, um, I believe it's in Tel Aviv, it's a very famous spot where I guess when world leaders go to Israel you always see them at the Wailing Wall Um, and people put, like, notes in it and things like that. Um, He wanted to move the stone blocks of the Wailing Wall and ultimately the police got him. He was sent to a psychiatric hospital, given antipsychotics um, and sent home to the United States. Um, But a number of people have actually experienced Jerusalem syndrome in the city of Jerusalem um, without any history of mental illness. So it was around 42 of the 470 tourists that were admitted to hospital in Israel over 13 years didn't have one at all. So what are your thoughts on <laughs> Yeah, I think it's... I'm sorry? This one's really intense, like, I, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think it's it's interesting, yeah, to, like for a lot of people there's that underlying factor and um, I think, 
you know, just from what I know about schizophrenia in general, yeah, it's sort of, you know, can ebb and flow. Um, and yeah, certain, it's interesting in terms of what can trigger people. Um, and here we're talking about, uh, I guess it's the religious tie that's meant to be the trigger. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, it's usually Christians or Jews who I guess have that connection to Israel. Um, yeah. So I'm like wondering, I just think that's interesting in terms of, um, yeah, the, the trigger specific thing. Um, but yeah, in terms of, I guess, um, schizophrenia and psychosis in general, um, I've had a few interesting interactions with people who, uh, have suffered with schizophrenia and, um, it's quite interesting. Yeah. You can have those, you know, the delusions and the hallucinations and stuff. And I remember speaking to one person and she said, you know, often there is this connotation with schizophrenia being very violent, um, because of, I guess the media coverage, right? So it's like, if someone in schizophrenia appears in the media, they've done something violent. (laughs) They're not going to report on, oh, today this person who had schizophrenia, you know, had a really good day. (laughs) It was unpleasant to everyone. Um, So there's like a really interesting bias that occurs there um, because the the rates itself are no violence, no different to the community norm. Yeah. Um, And um, I remember, oh, sorry. Because we, growing up, my brother and I had a friend um, who was a brother of mine who had schizophrenia um, and he would spend most of his time sleeping under his mother's bed and he wasn't violent, but Mm -hmm. the same thing that like people thought he would be violent. And also I had a friend um, in university who worked with different, she worked at the Raman center, but she worked at different with different mental health um, patients and would drive them to and from their appointments. And it was just her like in the car. And I remember her saying to me, she's never felt at risk with um, schizophrenic patients. Um, but she did say that she, she said that she always seemed to notice that when they were delusional, they generally thought they were Jesus or the devil. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just wonder like, how, how I wonder what the percentage is. This may sound like a dumb thing that when they have delusions, think that they are, or hallucinations, think that they are mm. one or the other. And does that stem from like their upbringing, going to Sunday school? Like, yeah, I just mm-hmm. find it, re- yeah, really interesting. But have you um, yourself like ever worked with schizophrenic schizophrenic patients or? Um, um, I haven't, I've had, um, we used to have a guest speaker, um, come to the school. Her name's Sandy Jeffs and she's a writer. Like she writes about her experiences. She's got a few books and she's got poetry that she's written and that sort of stuff as well. Um, but yeah, she, she talks specifically about her experiences with schizophrenia and the kids, like she does public speaking. So the kids just ask, you know, any question they want, it's pretty much like an open forum. Um, so I had some interactions with her, but um, I also like was friends with a nurse and she was telling me a really interesting story about, um, yeah, again, it's that um, delusions of grandeur, I think is the one it is because you can have all different types of delusions. I can't remember the other ones off the top of my head, but um, yeah, that's uh, the one of that, um, the, the delusion or the thought process is that, you know, you're someone really important. And um, the this woman who was in the um, the hospital and my friend as the nurse was working with her, um, she she believed that she was this really like rich and wealthy person, and 
um, she really liked my friend who was, you know, providing care for her. And as a gesture, she was like, you know what? I really feel like I want to give you a present for like, you know, all the work that you've done with me. And so, and you know, my, my friend's like, Oh no, no, like there's no need for a present. And she's like, no, no, I really want to give you Chadston, like the shopping center. Cause she thought she like owned all these like different things. She's like, I really know. Like, and then, and then my friend was like, Oh no, it's too much. And she's like, no, just, just have it. Just take Chadston. I, I thought where that story was going, she was actually going to be a rich and wealthy person that everyone had been <laughs> yeah. treating like she wasn't. Do you think, yeah. do you think the delusions of grandeur come like this may be too much of a question for you, but do you think they come from a place of um, lack, like the person thinking um, that they're not? Like, I'm not sure. I would be curious to know what if there's any particular patterns in the brain specifically mm. that are related to that one. Um, I'm not sure. I'm not sure what the answer to that question is. But, um, yeah, I just thought, um, you know, that that story was a really interesting one and I think it sort of, you know, with the the gift of Chadston, I think is highlights, I guess, the ways in which, you know, it's not always, um, you know, a, a scary or violent kind of um, manifestation of yeah. um, of the, yeah, the illness. But, um, yeah, I I'm, I'm, wish I could answer that question, but I'm, I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah, that's a very, the Jerusalem syndrome is a very complex one. Like, and also it's hard for me to understand because I'm not like, a religious person um mm. but mm. anyway so the next one that we're going we're doing is actually one we've talked about on the podcast way back on episode five um and it's india syndrome so we talked about this on the ryan chambers episode ryan was um 20 or 21 he was a young man from adelaide who went backpacking with a friend of his through india um and it was fine for a couple of months and then they got to a city called rishikesh which is very renowned for yoga ashrams and the Beatles going there to find themselves in the 60s um this is all on the ryan chambers double parter episode five 90 episodes ago um and ryan i'm i'm kind of going back i don't have notes on him but i remember the case well he he was at an ashram in rishikesh with a friend of his and they went to visit like a local i think it's like a baba which is kind of like a holy man um which there's a lot of them in india who aren't actually at all they're just scammers um and he went there and then he kind of went back to the ashram with his friend and got a bit out of sorts. And then the following morning at like six o'clock in the morning, he was seen leaving the ashram on foot. He, I don't think he had a shirt on and he didn't have shoes on. Um, and he has never been found again. And that case we go through Rishikesh, India and a lot of like, we talk a little bit in that about India syndrome, but there's actually, so one of my listeners, I can't remember who, wrote to me recently about that episode and said there's a whole podcast on India syndrome and the podcast is called Astray if you're interested in India syndrome. And there's another guy, I think he was Irish or American, I can't remember, called Jonathan Spollen, who also disappeared in similar circumstances. And Ryan and Jonathan, I think, had both been smoking a fair bit of hash before, which is very common to find just everywhere in India. You can generally get, you know, the drugs, the drugs that you are looking for but so india syndrome is defined as quote delusional behavior which which hits people from developed western countries who are looking for a cultural space that is pure and exotic where real values have been preserved those who succumb to india syndrome are usually people who come on spiritual journeys unquote so there was a guy called scott carney for the huffington post who wrote 
a big in-depth piece about Jonathan Spollen, who's never been seen again, and he came to the conclusion that induced syndrome is real. He said that it generally affects Westerners because they are overwhelmed getting there, um, which we'll talk about in a minute because the reality of India on the streets is very different, I think, again, from what people think it will be. Um, He believes it comes down to drug use, culture shock, and even intense meditation um, because these people often go to ashrams, things like that. Um, Seemingly sane people, he said, quote, get out of bed one day claiming they've discovered the lost continent of Lemuria or that the end of the world is nigh or that they've awakened their third eye. Most recover, but some become permanently delusional. A few vanish or even turn up dead. So one of the first people to write about this was a French psychiatrist called Régis Hérault. Um, and he wrote about the condition in the, is it DSM? Uh, they're up to five now. Yeah. So I'm not a, sure if at the time it would have been the four potentially. It, it says Probably four. So, yeah, um, yeah. And basically he, he wrote quite extensively about India syndrome in that. Um, and a medical director of a hospital in New Delhi, India, he told details.com that about 100 Westerners a year come to his facility for treatment related to India syndrome so what are your thoughts on this because I I have quite like a lot I guess that I went through Mm -hmm. on episode five yeah so um I don't have heaps of notes on this one in particular but I was very like I listened to that episode and I was very intrigued um by that one and I, I think what came up for me is I wonder with some of the syndromes as well um like how some people might process it like let's say psychiatrists because probably some psychiatrists might argue that with a lot of these syndromes are they really the same syndrome triggered by different things um so that's one thing that came to mind with me when I was like reading the different ones when people are going into a psychosis is it really is there an undercurrent of do you know what I mean? Uh, maybe yeah. a schizophrenia or something there that's being just triggered in different areas for different reasons. Yeah. Um, that was sort of my thought when I when I looked at it. Because I, so when I was in Cambodia teaching English, I very much like relate to seeing people who I think have a form of Southeast Asian version of this mm-hmm. because I met a lot of people generally from Britain or America who'd been there long term and they'd seem to have slipped in their hygiene and increased yeah. in their um in their drug use and drinking and mm-hmm. they kind of were doing things when you'd meet them that were not something they'd do back home and I really put a lot of it down to um drug use because it's easier to get drugs in these places mm-hmm. also I think India is a form of culture shock because I haven't been to India and I don't think you have either no but, like, the reality of India is very different, I think, from what mm-hmm. people think when they see the Beatles going there in the 60s. It's a overpopulated, very dirty, this sounds harsh, but it's, like, country with a lot of diseases and um, they don't do things the same way that we would do things. Um, right. They, they burn. Still, oh, yeah, they, you could feel quite vulnerable in that environment. Yes. Like, and yeah. They they burn bodies on pyres as a normal thing. Um, they mm-hmm. they put bodies on rafts and push them out to the Ganges. They drink out of the Ganges. They do their laundry in the Ganges. Um, and I think kind of seeing these things over and over again, especially for Ryan Chambers and Jonathan Spolin for about two months, I, I feel like that mixed with um, 
the use of hash really yeah, isn't which good. is and, meant to be a trigger like if you got the underlying if you have the yeah. underlying genetic for it yeah and the last kind of picture of Jonathan um Ryan Chambers um he was seen by security walking out of the ashram at six o'clock the following morning after visiting mm. this barber and smoking hash with him and he didn't have his shirt on he didn't have shoes on and I kind of think that's like exactly what long-term people in mm. Cambodia that I met um expats yeah who just kind of get around looked like and it's yeah. it's kind of not acceptable in Western countries to walk around shirtless, but they kind of, and it's also not culturally there either, but they kind of lose touch with um, reality. I also, it sounds harsh, but I also find that with a lot of people who are into very deep into spiritual stuff and the third mm-hmm. eye and chakras and things, um, mm-hmm. I don't know if they're maybe more susceptible to it. Um, I haven't listened yeah, to the podcast about it, but... Yeah, yeah, like certain personalities tap into that or, yeah, it's, yeah, yeah, I think that's interesting, yeah. Yeah. So the next one is one I am most worried about talking about. I don't know why because I don't really understand it. <laughs> yeah. So, well, I do but I don't. So it's called Sarajevo syndrome which really is just a form of PTSD but it's called Sarajevo syndrome after the Bosnian city that during the Bosnian War of 1992 to 1995, it was most commonly seen in people who survived the siege of the Bosnian capital. And if you don't know a lot about the Bosnian War, um, it's one of the first things I remember being on the news a lot when I was little, probably around 93. I remember the coverage of it a lot. So I'm just going to read to you basically what it was from the Holocaust Museum of Houston. Quote, Although many different ethnic and religious groups had resided together for 40 years under Yugoslavia's repressive communist government, this changed when the government began to collapse during the fall of communism in the early 90s. The provinces of Slovenia and Croatia declared independence and war quickly followed between Serbia and these breakaway republics. Ethnic tensions were brought to the forefront and people who had lived peacefully for years as neighbours turned against each other and took up arms. When Bosnia attempted to secede, Serbia, under Slobodan Milosevic's leadership, invaded with the claim that it was there to free fellow Serbian Orthodox Christians living in Bosnia. Starting in April 1992, Serbia set out to ethnically cleanse Bosnian territory by systematically removing all Bosnian Muslims, known as Bosniaks. Serbia, together with ethnic Bosnian Serbs, attacked Bosniaks with former Yugoslavian military equipment and surrounded Sarajevo, the capital city. Many Bosniaks were driven into concentration camps where women and girls were systematically gang-raped and other civilians were tortured, starved and murdered. In 1993, the United Nations Security Council declared that Sarajevo um, and two other areas that I can't pronounce um, in Bosnia um, and other Muslim enclaves were to be safe areas protected by a contingent of UN peacekeepers. But in July 95, Serbs committed the largest massacre in Europe since World War II in one such area, Srebrenica. An estimated 23,000 women, children and elderly people were put on buses and driven to Muslim-controlled territory, while 8,000 battle-aged men were detained and slaughtered. The so-called safe area of Srebrenica fell without a single shot fired by the UN. So ultimately, um, with, with Western countries like the United States, they basically signed a ceasefire. But a lot of people like were displaced, and I watched... Um, 
there's a really good new British show called Saved by a Stranger, which I watched it about two months ago. There was an episode of a girl who, with her family, escaped Sarajevo um, and she returned there trying to find the doctor who was able to get them on a transport out of Sarajevo and she currently, like, lives in England. Um, so... I'm talking too much with this one. So before, like there was a study done basically that followed people who had lived in Sarajevo but also left permanently and also people who had left and returned, um, basically followed them for 12 years after this ceasefire. Um, and it's kind of hard to for me to like read the things because it's a bit confusing with all the control samples and stuff. But ultimately... Um, they found that 32.7% of people in their study were in medical treatment, um, 38.6% developed PTSD. Um, and the things that really triggered them with the PTSD, with this Sarajevo syndrome, were gunfire, which was 74% said that, explosions, 72%, deaths of family members, 67%, and friends, 70%, serious injuries of loved ones, 65%, and conflict-related strains, e.g. poor access to food for a long time, were 58%. Um, and when I was kind of looking at that, it it's called Sarajevo syndrome because it really is their own form from the Bosnian war of PTSD. But really you can compare that to the Jews during the Holocaust because like from when I visited Auschwitz, I remember them saying that a lot of them had lifetime issues with, Mm -hmm. they'd carry a lot of food in their bags um, Mm -hmm. because they feared not having food. um, And they also feared dogs like German shepherds. um, And these things were kind of, um, yeah. So what, what are your kind of thoughts? Cause I know it's a very broad thing, but um, on Sarajevo Mm -hmm. syndrome. Mm. Um, Yeah. I thought it, I mean, I just remember, um, so I have, been here very briefly um my I must admit my history knowledge is not very up to scratch I think that's all right we spent so much time um focused on psychology history is just one of those things it's not my strong point but um I did go there and it was interesting to see you went to you went to Bosnia yeah yeah very briefly yeah all right. Um, and it, it is a like really beautiful place. It's got like a pretty heavy sort of um, Turkish style influence, like, you know, that kind of um, that, that sort of culture ingrained. Um, and um, in terms of going around there, they do have quite a number of buildings that still remain from that war. So you can walk around it. I don't know if you, um, can't remember if you'd said you'd been to Japan or not. No, um, no, no. But, yeah, if you imagine, like, when you go to – it reminds me, like, if, if you go to um, Hiroshima, like, you see the the big dome of where sort of the explosion happens and it still yep. remains standing. It was like that, but you're just walking through the city and occasionally in amongst normal houses you just see a house that the, the frame is still erected and they sort of – it's sort of kept up um, – as a reminder. So that was like one thing that was quite um, interesting to me. Um, the other thing that is interesting to me is that this, I can't believe this happened in our lifetime. Like, <laughs> yeah, well, um, yeah, when you say 95, it ended, people would be like, what? But yeah. yeah. Um, so that's the other thing that is just, um, yeah, it's kind of hard to wrap your head around. Um, and then in addition to that, I do 
like, I mean, working within sort of emergency services, I know a bit about PTSD. So um, in terms of PTSD symptoms, so let's say the symptoms, we've got things like flashbacks, nightmares, um, you know, rumination or constantly thinking or worrying about the event, um, avoidance of particular places that remind you of the event, and there's there's many more things as well. But, um, you know, there's some of the symptoms. Those The symptoms of PTSD itself are actually very normal. So they're actually a normal way for the brain to respond and process trauma. Yeah. What PTSD actually is, is when the brain becomes stuck. So it's the, you're going through this normal process of like processing the trauma, but then it's not ending. And so you're, you're stuck in this continual pattern of your brain continuing to try and process the event. If that's, does that sort of make sense? Yep. Yeah. So in terms of a PTSD diagnosis, it's not whether or not you have the symptoms, it's actually the length of time that you have the symptoms for. So if, if you're talking about someone in emergency services, let's say a critical incident occurs, if they have symptoms of PTSD for like two weeks, that's, you know, we can expect that, yes, they're going to have some sort of reaction probably. Um, but so if this, the- this study with 12 years, you know, you would expect that from someone who lived through like a ethnic cleansing in, when I mean, when you were in Bosnia, what, did you go to Sarajevo or did you go to Kosovo? Or um, I went to Sarajevo, yeah, very briefly, yeah. And did yeah. they like? Did you do a tour where they talked about? Yeah, um, yeah. So yeah, they sort of talked about bits and pieces. I must say, my memory on it is a bit sketchy, yeah. um, just because I'd done a lot sort of during that time. But I, I think what really sat with me was like those buildings, <laughs> like that visual yeah. reminder of like what happened. And I also saw like, um, you know, bits and pieces of footage at the museum of like people running from like gunfire mm. and, you know, that sort of stuff. Um, so, so you can understand why like hearing gunfire in on a movie or something would be, um, they consider yes. that the most free, frequently reported event, like people, explosions gunfire things like that so did you go to um poland or did you go in it when you were in europe to any concentration camps uh yes yep yeah um, so yeah um, I can't. I, yeah i'm trying to remember which one i went to it might have been auschwitz in poland i think so yeah, yeah. dachau in germany i think um, it was auschwitz yeah auschwitz is the big kind of so uh, in terms of like breaking the cycle of PTSD, so for a long time when they were still around, because Auschwitz opened in like 1950 as a museum, um, hmm. a lot of the tours there were run by survivors of Auschwitz and now there's less of them because they most of them have died, you know, of old hmm. age, the ones that are left behind that I had like quite a young tour guide at Auschwitz, like taking us around. He was like 25 and this is his job, you know, full time. Um, hmm. But it used to be even at like the Holocaust Museum here in Melbourne, they used to have survivors that had emigrated to Melbourne, you know, who would do it. Do you find that people who do that, because there's a lot of documentaries you can watch on YouTube and things like that, um, of people, you know, returning to concentration camps, do you think that that exposure therapy is helpful? Do you think those are people that have broken the cycle of PTSD? Um, I think it's, I think it's interesting. So I think, um, so 
I think it does depend on the person. Um, that exposure therapy is sort of a, a big thing in that area. Um, and, uh, yeah, I think it probably does depend on the person. Um, there's some interesting work happening in um, PTSD treatment at the moment where they're actually using um, virtual reality to to actually expose or as a step, I guess, between sort of replicating something similar to the environment, which out without actually being in the environment. If you're talking Whoa. about someone who's like, let's say a, a veteran who's come back, rather than getting them back into a war zone, they're actually replicating it with virtual reality. Um, so, you know, getting the headset on um, and that sort of thing. And then, you know, it's, it's easier for them to take breaks from that exposure as well. Um, do you know what I mean? Because wow. like you just take the VR off um, when you're sort of had enough. Because, yeah, because that's, that would be so, so after the Vietnam War, and I know you've been to Vietnam, um, and I'm not sure if you did any like kind of tours or anything, but after the Vietnam War, like a lot of Americans who were conscripted to serve in Vietnam or Australians, because we had conscription, Canadians, I don't know actually if the Brits or Canadians were involved, but basically like they returned and there was no support at the it's Mm -hmm. these days there is um from you know people who are returning from iraq or afghanistan like even now but vietnam Mm -hmm. there was no support when they came home so like a Mm -hmm. lot of them ended up taking their own lives a lot of them had picked up heroin or opium addictions um in vietnam Mm -hmm. to kind of deal with things that they'd seen and I, I always find it interesting the traits of someone who's going to develop it or not develop it because when I was in Ho Chi Minh City and I went to the, I don't know if you went to the war museum. Um, yes, I, I did, yeah, yeah. I remember talking to you when you were in Ho Chi Minh. Um, yeah. And outside, like parked in the front square, is like a big American tank. And the war museum, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, yeah, it's very like confronting because it has a lot of pictures of Americans waterboarding mm-hmm. people and um, there's like fetuses in jars, um, the effects of Agent Orange on fetuses, yes. things like that. Yeah. But when I was like out the front, I was sitting there having a cigarette because you can smoke everywhere in Vietnam. And um, I there was a, these American guys who probably would have been like maybe 70, like my dad's age, and they'd come to Ho Chi Minh with their wives clearly and they were – it was these two guys and they were like, this is what we rode around in and how cool is it? And I was just kind of watching them thinking, how do some people like just compartmentalise it like that, like it's an experience? And then I think of like people, I don't know why I'm thinking of Forrest Gump right now, but like some people come back and they're just unable to even they'd never be able to return to Vietnam after that. They'd never be Mm -hmm. able to see that again. Like what, what do you think like, uh, this is a big question, but what are some of the personality traits that you see of people who are more susceptible? Um, this is just drawing off, like off the top of my head, but um, yeah, I guess there's, there's, if you think about there's various sort of personality traits, think of them like on a continuum, right? So from, from low levels to high levels. Um, so neuroticism is one that comes to mind in terms of, um, you know, if you're sort of high uh, neuroticism, that's like, you know, feelings of um, anxiety, distress. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, some of those like hypervigilance or like prone to that, prone to quick reactions, uh, quick emotions, that sort of thing. Um, I think that that would definitely um, probably be related to being more susceptible. Uh, but, you know, there are also in addition to that other, um, I guess, uh, 
factors in your environment. Um, so, you know, do you have, I guess, a support, support system? Yeah. Support system. Um, what's your help seeking behavior like? Because, I mean, if you're talking about a lot of those demographics, and again, this, you know, is a generalization, but there's certainly a trend. If you're they talking about generally. that demographic, um, they're generally not reaching out for help or yeah. not, you know, normally seemed, seen as very stoic. You know, they might be the providers uh, not really uh, used to maybe asking for help or yeah. feeling that it's appropriate. The culture at that time as well, um, very, and, and, you know, I guess to reach out, I mean, even to reach out to a psych today, I mean, if you, if you tell, if you say that you see a psych to anyone, you know, you don't, you might get a mixed response. You know, some people might be like, oh yeah, shrug it off. Other people might be like, oh, is there something wrong with you? If you think about many years ago, I mean, men, there's no men way. coming it's- home and asking for that. Like we already, like, cause there's already an issue with men and mental illness and not seeking mm-hmm. help. And I, that's kind of like an ex, we will talk about this at the end of this episode, actually, mm-hmm. in relation to the Caroline Crouch case, but an expectation of what men mm-hmm. are supposed to be like. And yes. it just kind of like, because if I was a man who served in Vietnam, I was just watching this guy, these guys with their wives and like showing off with this tank. And I was kind of like thinking about like Lieutenant Dan in Vietnam, like, you know, in Forrest Gump, like he comes mm. back and he's just like fucked from it. And I already know that I'd be the type of person who w- would be because this is a very targeted question, but do you think that people who come back from a situation like war, I I don't know how to put this, mm. who have feel nothing and kind of just like whatever, do you think they have like sociopathic tendencies? Um, there's definitely... Because they say um, some people drawn to the military have sociopaths. Like, just to clarify, people who are sociopaths don't have to kill anyone in their lifetime. Like, I had a friend in uni who tested 20 out of 20 on the sociopath scale, um, and he was very clearly, like, a sociopath. He'd done, like, a test. He was actually studying psychology, which was really scary. Um, yeah. And he'd been, like, a PhD now, which is extra scary. But he, he was, like full-on sociopath and he'd said since he was a kid he felt like he was a psychopath you know but he'd never kill anyone um mm-hmm. do you think that what are your kind of thoughts on on that um so yeah so in terms of I guess people coming back and sort of not being affected I probably could be a few things but yeah they're on the one hand um yes there might be some people in that demographic that are drawn to the role specifically for um and the the trait the personality trait is psychotic psychoticism so you know if you're low on psychoticism then you're very like probably very easily put off by even maybe hearing about a violent story that sort of thing and then you've got the extreme end which is people that are very heavily interested in violence and um that sort of thing so um yes you probably have a you know, a portion I'm sure of, well, probably any demographic, but yeah, that that are sort of drawn to it for that reason. Um, I think in terms of other people that aren't affected by it, there is probably a group of people that are very, um, very resilient, very good at processing uh, information or, or, or um, sorry, I should say trauma. Um, so there's probably a collection that are either have their own independent strategies, good supports, good help seeking. Um, and then I think you have another bracket that might be suppressing as well so um decompartmentalizing which you know uh, may for some people that can work as an ongoing strategy for others it may resurface so um 
that would be my speculation. You're so clever, Laura. (laughs) So this is where I'm going to. We're going to take a break and come back with part two and more kind of psychological phenomenons named after places. Yes. little break I included some of the theme music for this podcast um it's guy it's by a guy called Scott Buckley and it's called Undertow thought I'd include that so in our break Laura said that she wanted to say something else we were talking about PTSD earlier so mm-hmm. Laura's not half-assing it here this is <laughs> value so yeah. go ahead love to add value um the other thing about Uh, PTSD or even if you think about um, mental illness or processing trauma in general is, yeah, this idea of where we're trying to process through an event and things that can increase your ability to process an event is journaling. Journaling increases your ability to process something that's happened, but also verbalising. And um, I remember because I I said, you know, I worked with emergency service workers, um, I was talking to someone who they'd had a a childhood trauma happen sort of in their early teens and they had repeated dreams about this event for years, like not every night, but, you know, it would just keep resurfacing quite regularly. And one day she verbalised it to someone. She She told someone for the first time ever and then ever since that, time she stopped having the dream isn't that <laughs> and crazy and I've heard this several times I've heard this from other people that have had a trauma happen like a traumatic um, death happen suddenly having ongoing dreams about it verbalize it and then it vanishes because it, it increases your ability to process it and it can help obviously not for everyone's different but it can help close that um because I've, I've noticed that a lot of psychiatrists and um, life coaches and things and psychologists and counsellors recommend journaling. And when I was a teenager, I used to keep a diary for like everything and I can't find them anymore. And I, I remember starting one because my grandfather died um, and I wish I still had them because I, I'd want to read back like over my <laughs> teenage thoughts. Um, but that's was it Freud that talked a lot about dreams um yes yeah Yeah. because people 
revisionist kind of psychologists say how Freud was like full of shit but Mm. there's a lot of like elements of what he talked about with the ego Mm. and the id shout out to Mr Corbett year 11 psychology (laughs) Um, (laughs) um, he was yeah um yeah that do you find that there's a lot of relevance in what he said um I think it's really interesting I don't really tend not to take a hard line stance with most things I I think um you know there's some people that are like yes like avid believers in Freud others that are like nah he's full of shit I'm personally of the value oh sorry of the mindset that most things that there's there's few things in life that have absolutely zero value to anyone (laughs) so even though Freud um yes he's less scientific in terms of um, you know, his ideas aren't necessarily testable. It doesn't mean it doesn't add value to people. Um, yeah. I think the way if something resonates for you personally, um, you know, I think that if it helps you make sense of your world and your life, then I think that's great. And I think that I definitely have a bit of an eclectic um things that I draw on um, in terms of I take bits and pieces of things that work well for me. And I think for, for Freud, it's, I think there definitely is some value in that and what you want to draw from it is up to you. But I think that definitely there are foundations there that had he not been around, a whole body of other work wouldn't have eventuated. So um, I think that he definitely has his place. Because one particular psychologist that I have their books and follow, he refers a lot to Carl Jung and a lot of a lot of Jungi- Jungian stuff, like yeah. resonates, uh, Jungian, um, resonates a lot with me. So, that's, mm. yeah, that's so true. Like, it, there's always going to be something of value that someone says. Yeah, so, yeah, and you know, not everything. I mean, yes, we've got science, and that has its place as well. But you know, equally, you know, religion isn't scientific, but people gain value of it, and they, you know, I think that's yeah. There's there's a lot of you can gain value from many different things. So. Amazing. Thank you. So the next one we're going to talk about is I find it really interesting. And I actually read a book about this, a fictional book when I was in school. So um, it's Lima Syndrome, which is named after the capital city of Peru. And according to medicaldictionary.com, quote, a phenomenon which is the opposite of Stockholm Syndrome, a psychological phenomenon wherein hostages form bonds of, I don't think that's right wherein hostages form bonds of empathy and sympathy with their captors to an extreme degree. So, sorry, this is really bad. It's it's copied Stockholm Syndrome. So, hang on. I'm going so to is the actual. It, no, yeah, sorry. So Ignore what I just said because I've copied Stockholm Syndrome into it. Um, beneath it is actual Lima Syndrome. So, Watch quote. Out. Lima syndrome gets its name from a hostage crisis that began in late 1996 in Lima, Peru several hundred guests at a party held by the Japanese ambassador were captured and held hostage. Many of the captives were high-level diplomats and government officials. Um, In the first month of the crisis, a large number of hostages were released. Many of these hostages were of high importance, making their release seem counterintuitive in the context of the situation. So in Lima syndrome, which is the opposite to Stockholm syndrome, the captors form the emotional bonds with their captives, not the captives to the captors. So what I was talking about with Stockholm syndrome is I see elements of Lima syndrome in Sto- in the case in Stockholm where they took the bank employees captives because in that they would like let them call home and um, put blankets on them and things like that. So 
Lemur syndrome is the opposite where the captors start feeling sorry for the captives. And the reason that I know this is because when I finished high school, not with Laura up in the country near my mum's, um, I, there was a book that I read for year 12 literature and it was called Bel Canto and it's about this particular case, but it's a fictional book about it. Um, so read that if you're interested. So they say that Beauty and the Beast is a kind of fictional version of Lima syndrome because the Beast starts feeling sorry for Belle. Oh, that's a good um yeah yeah good like and that put the piece of the puzzle into place for me. I'm like okay yeah because yeah. you were really like you were like what is this? I'm not getting yeah. it like earlier. yeah. So um what what are your kind of thoughts? Because basically the thing with Lima syndrome is you don't expect the captors to start softening against the captives. It kind of goes against what they're trying to achieve. And in that case in Lima in 1996, they were trying to, it was a revolutionary group which took all these people captive at this party and it went on for like a couple of months and they kept them in this big house there and they were trying, their demand was they wanted members of their movement released from prison who were in prison. But ultimately they softened against their captives so much that they just ended up letting them go. Mm. So don't feel on the spot if you don't have anything to add for any particular one, but kind of what are your thoughts on that? Because Mm -hmm. I guess you could bring it back to a domestic violence situation where there's moments of um, the cap, the, kind of abuser Mm, softening if you know what I mean yeah I'm wondering this is just something that jumps out to me I mean when you talk about this example of um like Lima syndrome I'm wondering is one of the features is that it's ongoing in nature I mean the example that you drew upon there we're talking about months most hostage situations are probably I, I don't know I don't know like well, no, that's not necessarily the case. But, you know, in a lot of the hostage situations that we talked about earlier, it's probably not. That, like, it's a really long time. Um, it's yeah. a, a long time to – and I wonder too if, um, you know, being that it's so ongoing, um, you know, we do as, you know, humans have a strong desire to form social bonds. Like it's wired within us. Yeah. And so I wonder if that, like, ongoing nature brings that out in people yes they started off wanting to hold these people hostage but the the brain and and body is just like wired in such a way that our lives are more meaningful when we connect with people and I wonder if that isn't a driver for that syndrome that kind of thing makes me think about um when you know you hear cases of people being or women being abducted by men and the reason that they escape is because they start to talk to them um, about Mm. themselves and not only just about themselves and what they're like trying to do with their lives, but talk to the captor as well, which is more of like a Stockholm Mm -hmm. syndrome, but women are really smart. There's a case where like an 11 year old girl knew to do that to kind of get Mm -hmm. them on board. And I guess that, that makes sense. um, What you said about like human bonds, it's, it's harder to kill someone when you know, Mm. about them yes it makes it a lot more personal all of a sudden this you know this person that you originally were going to use for your game they're just like a, a nameless you know and just another another person but then you know behind that is a, a story um a person with hopes a person with dreams and I think when that starts to reveal itself it becomes a lot trickier probably to hold for a 
someone who's like abusive or, you know, in that um, a captor sort of, is that the word? Like the person yeah. that's holding people, um, it probably becomes hard to maintain in an, on, in an ongoing situation where you are starting to realize that, you know, this is, this is, this is a person like me, <laughs> um, you know, uh, yeah. The other example I thought of in regards to Lima syndrome, I don't know if you've ever seen the movie, the pianist, um, pianist, not actually no. um, which is basically the true story. I've got the book of a Jew who survived the Holocaust. He was like a, um, Polish, quite highly regarded piano player and he ended up surviving purely like just living um hiding out for the whole time in Poland and um at the end which happens it happened in real life he is hiding towards the end of the war when the Russians are about to come and liberate them um in a building and Nazis are kind of like clearing out the different buildings and a Nazi found him and actually like took pity on him um, and bought him food and he basically said to him um, the war's coming to an end and um, he kind of admired who he was as a musician and ultimately he tried to after the war try to find this Nazi and he was held in a um, they put a lot of the Nazis in like um internment camps and um mm. ultimately it took him like 20 years but he found out who he was and he was just a sports teacher who when the war happened he was kind of socially forced to sign up for the Nazi party but he really didn't have those um sympathies and um mm. it just there's a part of the book that has kind of the biography of who this man was and um I guess that's like a form of Lima syndrome in a sense Mm, yeah, I haven't yeah. Seen that movie, but it sounds really interesting. I know it had like I got a lot of rewards and stuff like that. Yeah. Like- so the next one I have is London syndrome. So London syndrome, they say it's the opposite of both Stockholm and Lima syndrome, but I think it's like totally different. So um, in London syndrome, one or more of the hostages that are being kept hostage by captors, they quote-unquote provoke his or her death by arguing or annoying the captors, challenging them or trying to escape, or not just one but a group of them do. And the captors come to dislike the hostages so much that they ultimately end up killing them when they can. Now, Mm. this comes from a hostage situation in 1980 at the Iranian embassy in London where Arab separatists took 26 hostages inside hostage. Um, and of the 26, they very quickly killed one who was very vocally, he was arguing with them, pissing them off. Mm. Um, and basically they killed him within the first few days and threw him out the window to kind of show the rest of the hostages, like what's going to happen if you don't follow the rules. Mm-hmm. And they say this is the opposite to Stockholm and Lima, but I don't really think... It is because no one's taking pity on anyone. Um, but ultimately the British SAS stormed the embassy on day six of that takeover and freed the other 25 people. Um, so I don't really have a lot of, like, notes on this. Like, mm. I'm not sure if you wanted to talk um, about. Yeah, I'll, I just think um, the idea, like, I would be one of these people, like, I'd be so fucking annoying to be around. Yeah. I'd probably just, like, keep talking, 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 like, oh, just get rid of her. <laughs> 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 but um yeah i think this is quite an interesting one um and i wonder if it, uh they were saying that 
do people think it's the opposite because Lima and Stockholm are characterised by traits of like developing empathy and um, London is characterised by developing, um, oh, what's the right word, um, like despising, <laughs> starting yeah. to despise Apple the people that you can't. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, um, I, it's an interesting, like, study in human nature because most people, like the other 25 hostages, when you're in that situation, you're trying to, main, like, you're in a self-preservation mode and generally, mm-hmm. like, you would understand without it being said that pissing them off might mm-hmm. get you killed. Mm-hmm. So that's a really weird, like, I wonder, yes. like, what the guy's background was. <laughs> yeah, and I'm also wondering too, you know, if you were to look at, the number of cases of, um, what is it, Stockholm and Lima versus the number of London, I would assume, and this is just an assumption, that there would be far less cases of London syndrome, like because of normal people's, I don't know, like, yeah, ability to or desire to live. Um, well, I wonder if, or I wonder if that guy's reaction came from something that happened in his life, like where he was yeah. like, now, fuck this, like, I've lived through this kind of shit, this isn't well, happening, but... Well, yeah, because some people do um, get by in life by, you know, being argumentative or combative. So if that's something that worked for him in his life uh, that and he normally got the desired response, then, yeah, maybe there's that tendency to, to continue with it. That's really interesting you say that, that people get through life, you know, being argumentative and combative mm-hmm. and generally like they say that CEOs of companies generally have yeah. sociopathic tendencies mm. um, yes. and that they get to that position generally because they are. Yeah, win at all costs. Yeah. Yeah. It's weird. All right, the next one that I have is sometimes called Florence Syndrome, named after the city in Italy, but it's also technically called Stendhal Syndrome, S-T-E-N-D-H-A-L. So this is a condition that is unique to the city of Florence, Italy, which is, have you been to Florence, Laura? Yes. Yeah. time ago, yeah. So I've been twice because my friend Jess from Italy lives in Florence um, and it's a city that's I talk, I have been to Florence on this podcast before and I've also talked kind of a bit about Michelangelo and Da Vinci and how the masters came from Florence, which really ties into this case. So Florence is very famous for its art, its architecture. It's where David is in its own, the Statue of David um, in one museum and then you've got the Uffizi Gallery which is I think one of the biggest art museums you know in the world and so Stendhal syndrome or Florence syndrome was coined in 1989 by an Italian psychiatrist and he coined it after seeing more than 100 tourists who were hospitalized in Florence after looking at artworks that Florence is famous for but it actually goes back to 1918 when a French author named Marie-Henri Bell described his experience visiting the Basilica of Santa Croce in Florence which is actually the Duomo in you know um, in the center of the marble Duomo Um, so according to Medical Dictionary Online quote a psychomatic 
response, tachycardia, vertigo, fainting, confusion and even hallucinations when the victim is exposed to something particularly beautiful or large amounts of art in a single place, e.g. Florence, Italy, which has a high concentration of classic works. The response can also occur when a person is overwhelmed by breathtaking natural beauty, which is what happens when people look at us, Laura. So, (laughs) So one of the psychiatrists dealing with these people said that they were usually sensitive emotional people who quote-unquote overdosed on art so one of the most recent ones was a man had a massive heart attack he was looking at the painting by Botticelli the birth of Venus which is a very famous painting which is in the Uffizi gallery in Florence and he had a massive heart attack while looking at it and for some bonus trivia about Florence syndrome um, so there was a 1996 Italian horror movie called La Syndrome di Stendhal, which is a, about a serial killer who kidnaps women who are having this Stendhal Florence syndrome at a museum. So he waits for it to happen to them. Now, this mm. was directed by a famous Italian director called Dario Argento, who in a way will play into an upcoming case that I'm doing. Um, and this was ex- inspired by his own intense experience with Stendhal syndrome um, as a child when he was visiting the Parthenon, which is in Greece. Um, the Parthenon's in Greece, the Pantheon is in Rome, isn't it? I think that's correct, yeah. Yeah, um, with his parents. Um, but I will say that the Argento family are known for being like histrionic lunatics. So <laughs> um, now what are your kind of thoughts? Because so... like I didn't have this happen but I understand why it would happen to people because when I like have seen when you see these things in real life it Mm. it, it's kind of like very shocking to the senses because it's something that you know exists and so when I went to Rome and I went to the Vatican and saw the Sistine Chapel which is you know famous for Michelangelo painting the ceiling of it their seats kind of around the edge I don't know if you've I'm sure you went to the Sistine Chapel. Um, oh, I can't remember. It was Vatican, a while ago. Like I went to Italy when I was like 18. I was probably on some like shitty Kentucky tour. <laughs> <laughs> I was probably hung over that day. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, the ceiling is painted by Michelangelo and it took a lot of... Um, it took yeah, I don't years. think I have been there. I don't think it, I've been there. Oh, okay. And it, it basically the most famous part of this massive ceiling is um, David kind of touching his finger to God and it's oh, yeah, I know the one. creation. Yeah. And when I went there, I, I felt, I sat on the edge in these seats and I was looking up at the ceiling and like heaps of people, you're not allowed to take photos of it because it's a fresco and the, the paint mm. will be destroyed by the flash of a photo. Heaps of people were taking photos and the Swiss guard was like yelling at them all. And I was mm. looking up and I was, I remember thinking like, if I believed in God, this is the closest thing to God I've ever seen um, and I remember thinking that like really vividly how could someone ever you know create something like this um, and I guess that's kind of my version but I didn't end up in hospital and I was fine but what are your <laughs> kind of thoughts on Florence yeah. syndrome or Stendhal syndrome? Yeah um, so firstly during lockdown I started um, dabbling with a bit of art although I doubt that my pieces would have been overwhelming to the point of someone becoming <laughs> ill Uh, which is very sad for me. I'll clearly never have an art career. (laughs) Um, But yeah, some interesting things do come to mind when I'm, I'm hearing about this. Like there's, 
Um, some emerging research coming through at the moment. So I'm sure, you know, you've heard of the mindfulness being bandied about a lot, but yeah. mindfulness is sort of being, it's not, I mean, people sort of think that it's mainly meditation, but it's really just being in the present moment. Yeah. So that I, when can, I, when I had a really bad patch, I like learned it. It's kind of like thinking of a river and letting it just go by without Mm, attaching mm -hmm. yourself to leaves floating on it which are kind of thoughts which I guess is the best way someone explained it to me but yeah yeah so it's like trying to be present without uh being attached to any particular thought sort of thing and so different things will bring it on for different people but one of the um new sort of emerging areas at the moment is this idea of experiencing um awe and beauty in the world and so you mentioned before nature so that's that's one thing that can uh, bring on that sense of awe and beauty, which is generally positive for well-being, but like a feeling of transcendence. And the other thing that is coming out is uh, amazing feats of humankind can bring mm-hmm. on this sense of like transcendence. And I see it as being like just a really, do you know what I mean? Like, I mean, generally it's positive for well-being, but it's like they're experiencing it on such an intense level um, that they're, you know, unable to function for whatever reason. But it, it often, and you sort of talked before about, you know, if I believed in God or whatever, this is what it would be like. There's this sense of it it being overwhelming because it like reduces your sense of identity and makes you realise like how big Tiny and wonderful the world is. Yeah. Um, and that maybe, yeah, I guess this is like an intensified version of it. Like sometimes feeling, it sounds weird, but feeling small or feeling a small part of a bigger thing, like a a small fleck in this massive universe is like difficult for you to kind of comprehend and you don't think about it very often, but it's kind of like almost an exaggerated version of that to the point of, you know, becoming ill. Like it's so overwhelming how little I matter or like that's sort of what came to mind for me um, when I was listening to you talk about it. Yeah, because... And also what that psychiatrist said about people who experience it are generally sensitive, emotional people. And they're generally the people that I find, um, like, you know, when you go to these places and people just shuffle past to tick things off their bucket list. And I really Mm -hmm. felt that, um, especially at the Louvre in Paris, when people were just wanting to see the Mona Lisa, even though it's like the size of an A4 piece of paper. It's so small. It's (laughs) tiny and it's so, oh, like, okay. Mm -hmm. Um, But then... Just around the corner from that is a really famous artwork, which is just a statue and it's not surrounded by anything. You can literally almost touch it called the um, Venus de Milo, which is a very famous piece of artwork that washed up on a beach in Greece. And it it dates back a long time and people were just walking past it because Mm. they just wanted to tick off that, you know, um, Mona Lisa and just shuffle past. And there's not really, to be fair, I didn't really feel anything seeing the Mona Lisa because it's so tiny. Mm. But seeing, um, I'm just trying to think of different, mainly in Italy, I I actually kind of, this is one that I really almost understand because art is different things to different people, but people who like art and appreciate it and get really like nerdy about it, like I do in particular about um, Michelangelo or Da Vinci um, or the masters, generally Mm. I can see feeling this. Yeah, I think it's interesting what you say about um, people that are sort of overly sensitive, that kind of character trait. I mean, 
that feeling of transcendence that we can get when we see amazing feats of humans, whether it be art or whatever it is, they may just be overly sensitive and therefore not able to tolerate (laughs) that experience to the degree that, you know, other people may um, sort of my take on it. Yeah. Mm. Yep. So the next one, staying in Italy, um, takes us to Venice. Have you been to Venice? I have, yes. Yeah. Did you like it? I did like it. Um, it the the smell is something that I yes. hadn't anticipated. Um, yeah, and, and that that reminds me of Paris syndrome a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? The yeah. expectation versus reality on that on the smell front. Well, I don't know. I went in winter. I went in December, and it was completely flooded, and the water was like up to your knees in St Mark's Square, and they'd put out like tables for people to walk across, and I think the whole weather thing was tainted because they talk about the light um, that Italian masters used to influence their paintings and um, Mm. you get that a lot in Venice in summer like if you look at pictures of it now it's like amazing but when I went I was just kind of like oh fuck Um, but yeah Venice, Venice syndrome is a psychological disorder that is quote is it oh, sorry quote Venice syndrome is the decision made by people intent on suicide to kill themselves in Venice which for them according to Italian researchers is the symbol of death unquote so this was one of the ones from that study a note on psychological disorders by um, Ernest Abel from Wayne State University and this is one of the few documents that actually talks about Venice syndrome if you look up Venice syndrome it comes up with a documentary that's got nothing to do with this so Between 1988 and 1995, 51 foreigners, both men and women, tried to kill themselves in Venice. Most of them were from Germany, which people believe or experts believe means that they were influenced by a novel called Death Death in Venice by Thomas Mann, which I've heard of, but I'm not familiar with it. Um, But they also were tourists from England, the USA, France and other places as well. 16 of these 51 foreigners succeeded in killing themselves. The 35 who were saved from killing themselves told researchers that they had travelled specifically to Venice, Italy to kill themselves. Most of the women took drug overdoses and most of the men hurled themselves from hotel windows, jumped from bridges or tried to drown themselves in the lagoon, you know, of the canals of Venice. Um, Lead researcher into Venice syndrome Diane Stainer told reporters that the main reason these people had come to Venice was that, quote, in the collective imagination of romantic people, the association of Venice with decline and decadence was a recurring symbol, unquote. So um, what are your kind of thoughts on that? Um, Yeah, I think it's I mean, something that just jumped out to me when you were talking about it is like those gender differences are quite interesting <laughs> in terms of the the means. Um, but, yeah, I think the, the idea of this book as well is also I'm wondering if that was, do you know what I mean, of influence to, or, you know, have had people read that book? <laughs> um, I believe, I believe. I haven't read it. I'm I'm familiar with it. I think it's pretty old, like a hundred or more years old. Um, mm. But Venice comes up kind of again and again in um, Shakespeare, even though Shakespeare had never actually, they don't believe, visited Italy. A lot of his works were associated with Italy. But um, The Merchant of Venice is another one that I was thinking of, like, 
but it's funny because they don't say see Venice and die. There's a saying that's is see Naples and die, which is, you know, a city mm-hmm. down kind of mm-hmm. fur- further south where you go to visit. Pompeii and things like that um there's a saying like see Naples and die like which actually doesn't mean like kill yourself after you see it but um Venice syndrome kind of hasn't widely been talked about which like I find Mm -hmm. really strange but the other thing I was thinking was on the podcast we talked once about a Japanese girl who was a young woman who went to Canada to a place called Yellowknife to see the Northern Lights. You can see it from this part of Canada. Mm. And during that research, I kind of came across that it's quite a big phenomena that Japanese tourists go to Canada to kill themselves. Mm. Um, And I've also talked quite a lot because I've had quite a lot of Japanese cases on this, not just in Japan, but about Japanese people, other places, the Japanese association with shame, putting Mm. shame on their family, um, you know, it's very, like, entrenched in their culture. So people who have looked into this think that they remove themselves from Japan elsewhere to kill themselves, like, because they don't (laughs) want to bring, like, shame on their families. But, yeah. Oh, that's interesting. So, yeah, I'm not really sure if, like, there's other places where people, like, associate with death Mm. or things like that like I don't associate Venice with death I associate Venice with like canals and (laughs) yeah um carnivale (laughs) yeah I was gonna say as well you mentioned that um Venice syndrome was less talked about is that what you said yeah because it really it's only written about by this guy in this kind of thesis that he wrote but it seems like I mean in seven years there was 51 people who attempted it and yeah. 16 of them died and the rest were, when they were asked why they did it, they said they'd specifically travelled to Venice um, to kill themselves. And also when you said about the gender differences with how mm-hmm. women do it versus men, mm. generally like in crime cases, men are more violent with how they do things as women mm-hmm. are more kind of internalised. So yeah. that makes sense why a woman would take a drug overdose but a man mm-hmm. would jump from a hotel window because men are more violent. Like that can kill someone else (laughs) like yeah um Um, it's interesting too because I wonder if it's been covered less or studied less or talk about less because we are talking about suicide and often there is a bit of a concealing nature about yeah about that and I'm wondering if that has anything to do with the fact that or then results in a trend where that syndrome is being talked about less than other ones that you you were looking at or you've researched I wonder how many kind of ended up in the canals and were never found or washed out to mm-hmm. sea. But when you talk about um, a concealing nature, I thought of in Japan, um, there's a really famous forest where people go to kill themselves. Um, mm-hmm. And they call it like the suicide forest. And people yeah. like hang themselves there and they kind of go in and clear out you know the dead bodies and they generally like extract themselves they won't do it at home because of shame they'll go to kind of one particular place like can you elaborate more on um kind of the concealment nature of it um yeah I just think that there's um it's in there is a, a big stigma around it obviously um I think people don't want to talk about it I think I think it's one of the one of those 
big tragedies, right, like a, a death that didn't need to happen mm. um, and then the flow-on effect to other people. I know particularly in emergency services people struggle with it because they they see the after effect of it as well in terms of how it affects the families and stuff. But even if you think about any kind of, uh, you know, reports on, um, you know, someone's died, you know, rarely will they sort of say what it is. It's kind of hidden. Yeah. Um, well, you get that a lot when someone throws themselves in front of a train. They always report mm-hmm. that it's mm-hmm. just like an accident. Yeah, and it's it's a really it's a really tricky one because on the one hand, you don't want to traumatize people. Then also, in doing that, you conceal it and make it less talked about. So, I, I and I don't have an answer to that either. But it it is a tricky, you know, it's a tricky line to toe in terms of. Um, how do you manage it <laughs> um, you in terms see, of how it's talked about? Do you see like um, I'm not I'm not putting you on the spot because I know this isn't like your exact field of expertise, but mm-hmm. do you see um, kind of any cultural differences between people who commit suicide or gender differences or like do women kind of because they were kind of saying that women generally take drug overdoses while men try to drown themselves or jump out of windows because it's like kind of a more violent death um i i guess kind of what i'm asking is like um i don't really know what i'm asking actually no that's all right so those gender differences that we discussed definitely occur um probably the one of the biggest takeaways in that area is that um you know men are now i I'm just trying to think of the age bracket. It's like men from the ages of 24 up to 50 are like the highest, um, highest suicide rate. So in terms of, um, you know, why that is. um, And again, I think we've sort of touched on this uh, as like earlier, but there's this culture around not seeking help um, that makes men particularly vulnerable. Uh, Women have generally um, very strong social connections and it, often supports them well and serves them well through in time, through times of difficulty. Yeah. Men do not necessarily have the same and they may have, um, they may have contacts, but the, even the ability to open up to those contacts is very complicated. I mean, not wanting to burden. I mean, sometimes they can be the, the stoic one in the family. So people are coming to them, not wanting to burden family members, but even friends. I mean, you know, men are generally more inclined to, do things whereas women are generally like you know women will catch up and just have a coffee but they're really just talking the whole time whereas men and this is again these are stereotypes but men will watch the footy together there's not necessarily yeah. talking going on and um, although yeah. there is but they're they're normally meeting to do something rather than to just speak openly yeah um, so yeah that's probably like one of the biggest takeaways from that that area um and i guess also speaks to the need to you know, support men and I guess the, the change in culture that would benefit um, would benefit men. Of because there's, there's a real misconception about men as well in terms of being victims of violence because men 18 to 35 <clears throat> are overwhelmingly victims of violence as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think kind of like a lot of the feminist movement I've talked about on the podcast that I'm not really on board with a lot of their things um, mm-hmm. have kind of made that people are shocked for that statistic. Um, mm-hmm. And I think a lot of those movements haven't served men very well. It's really like pushed mm-hmm. them back 
kind of um, in their shells. But actually, I listened to this um, comedian, his podcast, and he was like talking yesterday on an episode with his friend about how they ring each other to like bitch about their wives. And mm. I was like, kind of like shocked because he said yeah. it because he was so like insular with his problems and like they're both in their 50s now and it's kind of taken them like mm. all of this time to just talk to their friends like I think yes once you get to a certain like age you're like oh what the fuck like he's talked a lot about you know how a lot of his anger when he was younger where it came from and how only now has he like s- sought help and all of that stuff yes. anyway yeah there's some interesting trends there yeah so the next one I found really interesting, although there's like nothing out there about it. So this is again from the same study, um, a note on psychological disorders named after places. And these last two that we'll talk about have no info when you search for them. They were just touched on in this study. Um, so one of them is Brooklyn Syndrome, named after the borough of New York City, I guess. And it is a term that was coined during World War II by psychiatrists in the Navy who were tasked with looking at recruits to the Navy to, you know, fight in World War II. And they were marked as having a quote-unquote chip on their shoulders. And initially they looked at this as a mark or a, a sign of what they call psychopathology, you know, like a mark... that kind of indicates that this is like a sociopathic tendency because they saw it like they saw it very frequently but ultimately when it was researched into they found that it is quote a pattern of behavior characteristic of men from cities where men are seemingly (laughs) over argumentative or personally combative unquote so Mm. they said basically it's a thing that they found that initially they thought all these men were psychopaths because of how they acted to someone I guess challenging them but ultimately they found out that it comes from places where men are seemingly like quite I guess what you'd look at as like a man's man and they named it after Brooklyn because you think about New York and like hey I'm walking here (laughs) (laughs) and they're all like yelling at each other and stuff and I guess they they found that it came from men in certain parts of the world and at the end of this we're going to talk a little bit about um just the Caroline Crouch case because I did an episode episode 94 we're going to talk a little bit like briefly about um kind of men and domestic violence a little bit um and the first thing I thought of with that was it's not (laughs) People get offended about all kinds of shit and they know on this podcast, like, not even to fucking try it, but certain parts of the world, like you said that you noticed it in France, that men were very, Mm. I don't know what the word is, but statistically, like, men in Greece, Italy, the Mediterranean are very, um, very chauvinistic, Mm -hmm. very, like, um, you know, like... Patriarchy. Very like overt, very like overt about maybe what they're thinking, and yeah, yeah I know, I know what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, and there's there's there are higher levels of like domestic violence um, in places like that as well. Like because uh, I have been to Greece, and actually, like the second night I was there, like I was out with a bunch of people from my hostel, and the the Greek guy that was like running the hostel, like said two things to me in like a really <laughs> like quick succession and um and I was like whoa like you would never say that to someone else 
you know. Mm. And then we went out that night and one of his friend's girlfriends was there. And I was thinking about her the other night because she was like, she said, all Greek women are crazy. And she goes, you know why? Because the men make us crazy. (laughs) Um, But he was like, when we were, I was in Mykonos and um, we went out for a night and his name was Yorogos. He ran like the hostel and he was kind of walking like ahead of, I was walking ahead of him and he said, hey, in Greece, women walk behind the man. And I was like, oh, Mm. okay. And then very quickly after that, he said to me, I'm not someone who gets like upset about shit like this. I generally just laugh at them. But he said to me, you look like Charlize Theron. And I said, oh, thanks. And he goes, I did not say it was compliment. Mm. and I was like oh and kind of most of the run-ins with men like my Mm. friend her ex is um Greek and we've talked about this like um at length kind of the family ties and things like that but I was just kind of thinking um like this Brooklyn syndrome I understand what it's called you know Brooklyn syndrome but what did you find like in France kind of about the men um yeah quite intense um and obviously uh you know that doesn't speak for all men but I the frequency of which I experienced was much higher um than what I would experience in other countries and just sort of that um you know there are a few times where people just wouldn't really take no for an answer or maybe get quite angry in response to you know and normally I just say you know I've already got a boyfriend because it's just easier right (laughs) like it's just easier to say that than to and also if you say oh I'm not interested then that will potentially elicit an angry response but that is a whole nother issue in terms of why I should feel like that's what I have to say (laughs) um do you know what I mean I shouldn't really actually have to say I have a boyfriend to then have that respected (laughs) isn't it sad like I I've done that like a lot. Like I'm waiting for my boyfriend or something. Yeah, and then it's like, oh, well, I respect that there's a man involved here and bow bow out. (laughs) Um, Yeah, it it, it is very old school. Um, It almost goes back to like medieval times, that kind of thing. Yeah, respect the man's honour. And, you know, and that also, to be fair, like that that does happen to me in Australia too. I don't don't feel like I could turn around to any man and say, sorry, I'm not interested. Like I I would never turn around and say with someone, oh, sorry, I'm single but I'm not interested. I would just never say that. Um, So it's also not a phenomenon in, in terms of my why I me saying that it's that's not unique to Europe either but yeah it's that's an interesting another issue as well but yeah I could probably talk for a while about that one but yeah it's it's something that I noticed in terms of um yeah just there were a few times where it just felt just a bit more intense than it than it was at other places yeah yeah so the final one we have on our list is Detroit syndrome which is also referenced in this study but literally like there's very little out there about it other than that so Basically what Detroit syndrome is, is it is the act of replacing older workers with younger, faster workers. But I kind of see it as like almost replacing people with technology these days. (laughs) Um, Uh um, So it's a form of age discrimination. And the reason that it's called Detroit syndrome is because Detroit was the home, they called it Motor City, the home of car production in the United States and it kind of mirrors the replacement of older car models by newer models if you know what I mean Mm. so there's really it's it's just like a footnote um in that Mm -hmm. in that so what were your thoughts on that because I know that you said something yeah um so I 
I was interested in the fact that, yeah, there's some ageism involved here. And I remember doing some reading. This actually was to do with um, like one of my assignments for uni. So there's like research literature on it. But um, in terms of ageism and if you also, um, there's parallels with every other type of ageism as well, whether it's sexism, racism, whatever it is. But um, with ageism in particular, it's it's a really interesting phenomena because um, in every other ism, whether it's sexism, racism, whatever, yeah, um, you've got this group that you are or you feel different from, right? Ageism mm-hmm. is the one example where probably it's most likely eventually, unless you die young, you will also become old. Yeah. So ageism is an interesting one in terms of it lacks empathy for what you yourself will be in the future. <laughs> yeah, it's people, it's people who say, okay, boomer. Like, <laughs> yeah. It's like one day you fucking won't know how to use the newest technology. Um, yes. Yeah, so it's, it's an interesting one for that reason. But um, a lot of the ageism behaviours, so, um, you know, uh, whether it be thinking down on the elderly, being impatient, all that sort of stuff. Um, there's a theory about basically we all, you know, and we're not conscious of it, but there's this idea of like a fear of uh, death. So, you know, when we see someone who's really elderly, it's actually quite confronting. Yeah. <laughs> um, and obviously when we're talking about this specific um, thing with Detroit, this is on much milder forms, but you know, if you think about the more exaggerated forms, you see someone who's very, very frail, very, very ill. It's confronting for us to see that because deep down, you know, that's potentially where you're heading. So what happens with ageism is it's a way that um, looking down upon it and um, having negative attitudes, you're actually trying to distance yourself. Well, that's one of the theories. There's many theories of ageism, but that's one of them. It's like you're you're separating you know, us and them sort of thing. You know, us younger people, like we're different to them, those older people, those older like hopeless people. They don't know what they're doing. They don't know how to blah, 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 blah. If that's, yeah. Does that sort of make sense? Yeah, yeah, totally. But it's something that people have to come to terms with because a lot of countries have ageing populations. Um, mm. Australia is one of them. Um, Japan, Italy is one of them. Some of the oldest populations, you know, in the world. So um, mm. I myself... I have a very short fuse or threshold for being able to help my parents with technological yep. stuff mm-hmm. um, because it's kind of like, cause I don't like repeating myself with people if I've shown them how to do something. And that's kind of something that you have to do with older people. And they kind of know that I'm not the person to ask. Cause like, mm-hmm. what's interesting though is um, re- think of the other end. Would you feel the same way if it was a young kid that you had to explain several times? This is just a question out of curiosity. Yeah, because I, I, yeah, it actually is. But I know you're going for most people would say no, but yeah, um, it is for me because yeah. I, I find kids really like test me more than older people as well. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. but yeah, it's interesting, I guess, to ask yourself that question in terms of yeah, I, would I feel the same or different? And yeah, if everyone what, because be- you're you're equipping kids with a skill that they'll use, but like you feel like mm-hmm. maybe it's genetic because like my grandfather used to ask like. DVD plays had just come out around the time he died and he'd got a DVD player and he just couldn't figure it out. And my mum would be like, oh, fuck, like I'm going around there again to show him how to use this fucking DVD player. (laughs) Um, But I actually do, I am so impressed when I see an older person who's able to like, they've got an app or 
you know, like I'm mm-hmm. like, oh shit. But yeah. Yeah. So yeah, that's that's an interesting area. And um there's research on any sort of um yeah, like I said, uh, I don't know what the umbrella term would be, but yeah, for any of the like um ageism, sexism, racism, all that sort of stuff, there's um interesting research around what's happening in the brain. So essentially with all that sort of stuff, when you're separating yourself from a group, um, basically the what's happening is the fear centers in your brain are lighting up. So you see someone that you think is different from you. It's almost like if you think friend or foe, right? Mm-hmm. So you're constantly seeing people in your environment. If there's someone that you feel is very different to you, it's foe. Um, this person is potentially dangerous. I don't understand them, um, that sort of thing. And so you're interpreting them as the enemy. So it's it's often like a fear centers in the brain are lighting up and that's actually what's causing people to try and separate themselves as much as possible. Um, cause is that not- also, is, is that also what happens, you know, with anxiety or, um, um fear yeah, centers? It's- like you can see that. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, it's like, uh, so it's a, play- a, a part of the brain called the amygdala. So like yeah. the amygdala is like a fear center of the brain. So, um, it'll be lighted up, uh, it'll, sorry, it'll be lit up for any sort of threat. Right. So yeah. for some, for, for racism, for example, the, the person who is demonstrating racism is actually perceiving that other person as a threat. Um, I don't understand this person. Um, do you know what I mean? It's, yeah, but it's where does that, is that So where does that come from? Is it environmental or is it your, the formation of your brain generally? Or um, So it can be both. Um, so there can be a um, cultural component where it's like might be fostered through, you know, generations of, you know, families that are racist, for example. Um, it comes from a part of evolution as well in terms of if you think, if you think hunter gatherer societies, if you were in a, um, a a tribe of 150 or whatever, you're, you're floating around. Okay. This is my in group. Then you see across, you know, the mountain, another group of 150 coming your way, you know, you're trying to figure out, you know, you probably, can I trust these people? Are these people a threat to us? Are they going to kill us? And that's yep. kind of like the evolution behind it. Um, so, yeah, and then some people are more sensitive to it than others. And it also depends on your, if you've lived, um, you know, in a, and, and, you know, a lot of people do still live in um, a, a setting where you're mainly mixing with people who are similar to you. Um, so if you don't have much mingling going on, and that's like, and that, like we were talking about ageism before, I mean, we're not necessarily interacting with older, like very old, very frail people on a regular basis. Maybe we have one or two grandparents, but it's not like a normal part that the culture is not integrated enough probably um, for some people to, to for people to be able to tolerate, um, you know, differences in others. And obviously over time. But also it, it, I was just thinking it goes the other way because I, I, there's a lot of older people who hate the young generation and yes. I, I see it in comments like, online mm-hmm. on news articles you know um you know dumbass young people or influencers or mm-hmm. you know about about anything like these yeah. young dickheads and I always write on it like good for them like having fun like a recent one you know was like Britain opening again and people out at pubs and so many you know oldies were just how dare they go and have fun and it's like oh like mm-hmm. yeah um, yep. yeah so that's all of our syndromes. Now, we're just going to have a 
quick chat about the Caroline Crouch case that I talked about on episode 94. So if you're interested in hanging around for that, because um, there's a few other things. I just want to talk about it because it's been on my mind all weekend and um, since he said that he did it. And there's a few things have like come out about it that I wanted to kind of like update. So I thought it would be good to talk to someone like Laura because Laura doesn't um, – say that she's an expert in domestic violence or anything like that. Um, but she knows more than me. So, um, <laughs> so you listened to episode 94. I did. Yes. I got really upset um, in it because I, it really upset me on Friday, but I'm okay now. But mm-hmm. um, a few things have come out about that case since Friday. So basically um, Caroline Crouch met, and the reason that it's on this podcast is because she was a Briton who moved when she was eight to Greece with her parents, and they still live in Greece. Her mum does. So Caroline met. Um, so the guy that her husband, his name is. I actually got this right. So and I, his nickname is Babis. But the reason that they're using that in the media and people are having issues with that is because. They're like, why are they using a nickname? It's because his full name, I don't think most news readers would be able to say. So it's Cheryl Ambos Anagstopoulos. Um, Anagstopoulos, yeah. So he met Caroline Crouch when she was like 15 years old and he was 29, which is already like a massive mm. issue to me. And I said on it, like, because I didn't know that at the time, I said, she was already 20 and she'd already had a baby when she was 19. And so I further on, like they've released information that said that um, Caroline was like attending school when she met him. And apparently he wooed her with, he's a pilot. So he like flew over her school doing like flips and things in his, Mm. you know, helicopter. Um, And in Greece, the legal age to get married is 18. So when Caroline was 17, Babis like made her go to Portugal without her parents and she got married um to him when she was 17 and he was like 31 years old Mm -hmm. um and then when they got back she was quite a good student and she was attending a college um and this was in another part of Greece and he asked her to drop out of this university because well, we know now he's just a controller, but he said it was too dangerous for her to go to university. But from what we know now is because she was like, he didn't want her to form friendships. And then he moved her to a part of Athens where she didn't know anyone and her family didn't live in Athens. Um, And then she got pregnant when she was like 18. She had a miscarriage and then she immediately got pregnant again with the baby that now, you know, doesn't Mm. have any parents. So, all of that stuff has kind of come out over the last couple of days. There was also a diary that Caroline kept, um, which basically um, it, it was went back as far as way before she had her kid. It went back to like when she was 18, when she'd married him, a lot of the entries where she wanted to leave. Um, and one of them was when her baby, who's now one, as of this month was born. Um, it was when the baby was like one month old and the entry was something like, today my baby is one month old and today I told Babis that I want to leave. So this had been like a repeated thing. Um, And then ultimately what happened the night that she died, which has only just come out really now, is that they'd had a massive fight which was ongoing and 
there was CCTV in the house which showed Baba sitting downstairs at their house holding their baby um, and he's texting on his phone and he, him and Caroline were texting back and forth having a fight and she called him stupid. So then he went outside and he removed the um, memory card from their CCTV system which operated showing outside. So he would be able to kind of flesh out this story. Um, and then he like went upstairs with the baby, put the baby next to Caroline and then um, like smothered Caroline to death. It was with a pillow. And then he proceeded to kind of, he said initially, he said initially that he was going to hide her body and make out like she'd gone missing and she'd left and someone else had killed her. But then he realized that it was too confusing. So he decided he had to kill their dog because she was already dead and he wanted to make it look like the intruders, this made up story had taken this dog out so that it wouldn't attack them because I presume the dog was trying to help Caroline. I, mm-hmm. um, and then he proceeded to like make up this whole story that he was um, tied up the whole night. But actually, like I said on the previous episode that her Fitbit showed she was still alive, but it actually mm-hmm. didn't. It showed she was dead hours before he said that their house was invaded uh-huh. um, by these people. So I kind of like got really upset at that. But I wanted to talk like about the psychology of leaving because over and over again in comments, the one comment seemed to shine through and there's been, you know, thousands, tens of thousands on different news articles about this case that Caroline had told Babis that night she was leaving and she was actually on her computer looking for a hotel to stay at. Um, and she had repeatedly told him she was leaving. But that night he says that she, she told him to get out for the night. And then she said, when you come back, I'll be gone. I've, I've fucking had it. So, mm. Um, one of the comments, the main comment was never, ever tell them you're leaving, just leave. Yep. Like, do you know the psychology kind of behind this? Um, so in terms of, I guess I know a little bit about some of the domestic violence dynamics and stuff like that, um, which I can then, I yep. guess, would make my own speculations as to why that might happen. Um, but, yeah, in terms of, I guess, um, domestic violence, like one thing that's like an eye-opener for people is like, this is in Australia, Victoria, by the way. Yep. 70% of police work, so 70% is domestic yep. violence. Yep. So I, it is. Yeah, I knew that because yeah. and they were also most at risk attending in a domestic violence situation. Mm, yep. So it's quite, you know, I mean, it's very sort of behind closed doors, but that's like quite overwhelming in terms of the, yeah, the amount of time that that takes up of the police's, yeah, um, maybe surprising at first um hearing that um the other thing I was I was at a PD um and it was about yeah I think it was about domestic or it was about family violence um and the quote that it started with was you know the the most dangerous thing a woman can do is get in a relationship Mm. and it was talking about like for, for certain ages and it's like, you know, young, you know, from like 16 to, I don't know, maybe mid-20s or something like that, that's what actually exposes women to the most danger is actually just being in a romantic relationship uh, because of this domestic violence stuff as well. So that that was um, surprising to me. Um, but, yeah, in terms of the dynamics themselves, I mean, there's some really um, interesting reading and literature around um the culture of men. So we know that, um, you know, often the culture does foster anger in men as an, a, 
a gender appropriate emotion and one of the few appropriate emotions, especially for some of the, like, um, some of those negative ones, um, we tend to in men foster anger as opposed to vulnerability or sadness. Um, and often boys and girls, like from uh, up until about age eight, boys and girls cry the same amount. So mm. you, you wouldn't know, like, you know, if a, if a child, a boy and girl is five, they will cry an equal amount. And then there's a shift after about age eight. Mm. And that culture starts to get in where boys are like, oh, okay, I shouldn't cry, potentially being teased for crying. I know I've, I've witnessed, um, you know, at like a, you know, random barbecue at a friend of a friend or whatever, there was a five-year-old boy who was upset about something and the, the father was like, you know, you look silly when you cry. And I, mm. I remember him, the, you know, seeing the boy then immediately trying to suppress the tears. I mean, this is a very young kid. Um, I doubt he would have said that. Or don't cry like a girl or something like that. Yeah, and I doubt very much he would have had that response if it was a a daughter. Do you know what I mean? Um, Because I I just want to quickly shout out my friend Brittany because she's got two young children. One, her little boy's like four and she's got a little girl who's like two. Um, And she raises, because she's pretty hippy-dippy, Brittany, Um, (laughs) she (laughs) like raises Sonny. She allows him to cry and... You know, um, she's very like in tune with this shit. Like she's, mm-hmm. she would never tell him, you know, to stop or anything like that. And he will grow up to be like a very, um, I think, centered person because of that influence. But do you think? Because it's, it's not racist to say that there's a stereotype that Greek men are very overbearing, um, as we talked about. And I think in a Greek, it works two ways with this case because in this scenario. Um, men are generally seen to be the breadwinners, the, you know, head of the family, um, but he couldn't allow her to leave. He, Somebody wrote who I don't think understands the psychology, like why he couldn't just let her go because getting divorced is easier than going to prison for life. Um, but someone wrote, yes, but you're thinking rationally. Ah, yeah, that's a really interesting response. And I think also this idea of, for me, um, when I was thinking about it, you know, if you think about what would be the stereotypical man or even um, I know where I was, I might have been, I think I was watching a documentary about it. And even like if you think about movies that are pitched to men and like men that would be admired, it's like someone who's powerful Fast and, and furious. Control. Yeah. They keep powerful making those movies, yeah. Yeah, so powerful and in control, right? If your wife leaves you, that's taken away from you, right? Like you're you're um, vulnerable, you yeah. don't have control. And so I think there is a piece there. And again, I'm, this is me speculating, but I think there is a piece there in terms of when that woman leaves, it's like you do have no control. And even if you think more like at a, at a very much milder level of what a breakup is like in terms of the lack of control, um, you know, if you pin your identity on being this powerful person that's in control, that moment that you don't have that anymore, there's this identity crisis of who am I and I need to get this back or I need to maintain control. Um, and yeah, if you think that you, you know, it's kind of like a very extreme version, 
Um, you know, I'm either going to try and make this person stay and then if I absolutely can't, then I'm going to have the last, I don't know, the last laugh or I, I don't know what the right word is, but I'm, do you know what I mean? I'm going to assert my dominance and even in a very extreme way. Um, that's kind of my take on it. Because um, I was just thinking I don't try to quote Oprah because I don't like her anymore, but she said mm-hmm. something like when I used to like her um, like 10 years ago because she dealt with a lot of like, families of you know on her show men had killed the kids and women had and she said um and I always remember it women kill their husbands to get rid of them and men kill their wives so no one else can have them um yeah that really resonates but yeah yeah yeah. yeah, it's it's like women can't deal with this anymore and you very rarely hear about a woman killing her husband because she's jealous or something and it, it's very mm-hmm. much in line with like even how women commit violence or kill themselves like we were talking about with the Venice syndrome earlier. Um, it's generally self-preserving or low violence. Um, it's very rare for a woman like to lash out and kill someone anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was just like, in terms of the emotions in Greece, um, he's he's been walking around with a bulletproof vest on since he got arrested and someone asked one of the police why he's wearing a bulletproof vest and he said Greeks are very emotional people. Like someone mm-hmm. could like lash out because they feel like – so basically when he made up his story a month ago, which no one believed, he um, said that Albanians – because there's a big issue with Albanians in Europe. A lot of people don't like them um, and find them untrustworthy and um, Mm. kind of deceitful. Um, And he said that he believed that the language that these people were speaking when they broke in was like Albanian or whatever. So because of that lie, people in Athens were like, closing up their businesses, losing their livelihoods, staying inside, locking their doors, being scared to go out when all along like he had lied and he was the killer. So like there's a whole lot of anger going on like at him. But the Mm. issue is Greece has a very lax criminal justice system, much like Australia and Britain and I was reading that like he'll probably get like 10 years because they're so just kind of whatever about the whole thing Mm. Um, and I hope that doesn't happen because like the international attention is on it but I just want to talk quickly about because when I don't normally have issues with like age gaps and things and back when I was 15 I didn't see an issue with why my mother would have an issue with me going out with a 26 year old or something like that but at my age now, I do see like yeah. an issue with that. And I I just want to talk about like why men, because I see this a lot, these much younger women that they can kind of mould, why a almost 30-year-old would want to go out with a 15-year-old and also just about like the process of narcissism, you know, like love bombing and yeah, things like that. So like, you know, I guess, talk a little bit about um how they kind of target the vulnerable I guess yeah um I do think yeah there I mean there's also some I know you were talking about in that case before that I don't know they got together when she was 17 or something like that um oh yeah 15 15 okay yeah yeah Yeah, he was like he was turning 30 but they got married when she was 17 because it was legally allowed in Portugal so he took her to Portugal yeah, okay. Um, so, yeah, I think there's this one side of, like, you know, I mean, that t- 
type of um, obviously certain types uh, would be drawn to younger people because, yeah, they are more, um, yeah, malleable, I guess, um, and receptive and probably accommodating also partly because um, when you're younger, you do just have a lack of experience. Like you just Mm. don't know. And I think in particular, like you're a lot less independent Um, and I think there's an interesting piece there in terms of those dynamics too. Like it's, it's very hard for women to leave as well, because, um, often, you know, if you think about that case we were talking about before, it's like, she got pregnant so young, right? So she's given up, you know, I think it was studies that you talked about, like a career, all that sort of stuff that would set her up to even leave. Mm -hmm. Um, so I think there's a piece there in terms of, they can almost chop off your independence. Do you know what I mean? Mm, like yeah. rather than if you date if if you date someone in their thirties, it's likely they're gonna, you know, they're gonna have a steady job and they can just leave you at any point because, you know, they've they've got the experience to back them, they've got the stability, they've probably got built very strong supports. Um yeah. just at a point in their life where they're yeah, they don't really have to put up with it. And I think if people that are maybe targeting um, for unsavory reasons, um, it's probably a, an easy target because I think, yeah, you just, you don't, you just so disadvantaged in that you just don't know much about the world. You haven't experienced yeah. that much yet. Um, but that's an advantage for them, isn't it? Yeah, 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 exactly. And I, th- um, I think Caroline, like, had the wherewithal to go- to know, nah, like, this isn't, I'm not, I've gone back and forth, but this guy is I just can't deal with it like mm-hmm. um can you talk a little bit about the process of like narcissists because I know um quite a lot of people like throw the term around but narcissists kind of they work in a process where they love bomb you and then they do you know what I mean mm. um yeah. I don't have like a definition off the top of my head I know of some characteristics to draw to mind but yeah it's this idea of they're not really drawn to again this is off the top of my head but um they're not really drawn to people for the same reasons that the rest of us are yeah the rest of us are wired for genuine human connection and for a majority of us that's what it's like for narcissists i think it's more um they will um want to be around people but it's all about what What they can get from them yes so it's it's about what can I gain um, and there's there, because that's the driving force. There's not really a, necessarily a genuine emotion towards that person necessarily but an emotion about getting what they want. <laughs> so and I they remember. Say that, they, they say that narcissists, they don't see their kids like most people naturally see their kids. They see them as just extensions of themselves and that's why when yeah. a man goes ballistic and kills his whole family, like a family annihilator, they generally find it easier to kill their children because they only see them as extensions of themselves, not, you know, independent, free-thinking mm. you know, individuals. <laughs> yeah, so that's kind of what, like, I, I didn't know anything until a couple of years ago about it, but a lot of like domestic violence situations you deal with narcissists because the love bombing process is so much for like it really wins you over they're they're usually very um, intense at the start they tell you they love you really quickly Mm. Um, they buy you a lot of things you know like do you think that being aware of these things like makes you less likely to be a victim I think so I think um 
uh, I just I just wanted to quickly backtrack to something yep. that was interesting about the kids as well. I read now I'm trying to remember it might have been um there's a book called The Psychopath Test um yep. by I think it's Ron Johnson but um I remember reading a passage about narcissists and he was talking about how this narcissist like his dog died and he was bawling his eyes out like he was so upset and people were like or I don't know whoever was like treating him or people around him were like, I can't believe he's so connected to his dog. Like he must actually have emotions. And what it actually is, is they view it as their property. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like something that my property is damaged yeah. and I'm upset. They would cry just as much if so- someone keyed their car or do you know what I mean? Be as like heavily, like emotionally affected. So it's almost like, yeah, there's a, a there's an ownership and it's like, upsetting because it's like oh you know I owned this and now it's gone and it's like that's a mark on my ego Um, yeah very yeah almost identical to the one like with children and I'm not I just learned that you know from different experts you know talking about um ownership same what you were what you were just saying um but I guess that's also a mark of a psychopath because they one of the early indicators is um is violence to animals it's it's like you know generally a, a build-up so yeah I, I just that kind of like gave me a bit of clarity because a lot of um most serial killers like don't have dogs but I've always found it interesting that um there was a serial killer in England called Dennis Nielsen who killed he, a lot of gay men and he had a dog um that he loved and I've just started to reassess that relationship with that dog um, because when he was arrested, the first thing that he said was, is Blep okay? The dog was called Blep. It was like a little, almost like a chihuahua. Mm-hmm. Um, and I started to, I've always thought that was really strange, but yeah, I've started to reassess that because you can't be both, can you? Like you can't be a psychopath, but also like a loving pet owner. Like I've, I've started, mm-hmm. since you said that, I was like, oh, maybe Dennis Nielsen just saw his dog as owner. His, his. Yeah. It's like it's the same as my car or my bike or something that's precious to me that I, I own um, and I don't want something to happen to something that I own. <laughs> um, so it's there's sad. that. Like yeah. it's some people, you know, are born having sociopathic tendencies and a mixture of like nature and nurture. And it's like it's almost sad because most sociopaths don't kill people. They just have those traits and they say that most CEOs of companies have sociopathic tendencies and that's how they get as far as they've got mm. um, or even world leaders. Um, mm. It's really it kind of as long as they haven't hurt anyone, it's quite sad that they go, don't get to feel those human feelings. Mm. You know, it's, it's such a like what a waste of a life. Yeah, it's like there's a whole world that, you're missing. Yeah. Um, but yeah. And, and then sort of going back to what you were saying before with the like love bombing. And I, I think, yeah, I think, I think reading up about these things and hearing people's stories is always helpful. Um, and I think will help you sort of identify or a lot of people identify when things are toxic. I think there's also a challenge there. And I think, there's challenges around physical violence and there, um, there's a lot of challenges there. There's also almost like a different set of challenges with emotional abuse. I mean, emotional abuse can be um, kind of hidden under the fact that most relationships will have arguments and 
I, I think emotional abusers can kind of hide behind that a bit more. You know, yeah. all, all couples fight. Um, you know, all couples get angry or upset with each other. Um, so it's a little bit, yeah, it's maybe a little bit less clear cut. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, the idea of, like, love bombing and all that sort of stuff is, yeah, really interesting as well in terms of, you know, what's, yeah, what's going on here. Um, and I think also just having those conversations with people in your life about your relationship. I know I've been in a couple of relationships where I look back now and I'm like, dude, that was, like, so toxic. But at the time it's it becomes a new normal mm-hmm. and you – it's yeah. It's like once you get out of it, that you're like, oh. But I, I think one of the things is like, often you there's something sitting in your gut. Like for me, there was just this gut feeling or this like anxiety that would creep in of like something's just not sitting right. And I think mm-hmm. I always thought, oh, you know, I. It's almost like let, let's say with that partner, I would try and explain why I was feeling the way that I I was and then he would just convince me that oh nah like that's not a thing or whatever but it's like nah like listen to your gut mm-hmm. <laughs> do you know what I mean if, yeah if they, they might rationally be able to argue every point but if like emotionally something's like not sitting right it doesn't matter you don't have to have the perfect rational argument to convince them that they're being unreasonable just yeah. it doesn't even matter. Like you don't even have to explain to them. Like I know I just got to the point where I'm like, um, actually, it do- I don't need to convince you that you're wrong. I'm just leaving yeah. <laughs> because it's not working for me. That's like all, yeah. But um, yeah. but yeah, as you said as well, it, it can be quite. Um, it depends on your situation. If your situation is once really violent, yeah, you you might need to obviously not have that conversation and put things in place to maintain your safety. Like you said, someone had mentioned earlier that you know don't tell them that you're leaving. Um, mm. And I, yeah, definitely if that's your situation where your safety is at risk, um, there'll be other things that you'll need to consider. But, um, yeah, it's I think going with your gut, it's, you know, it's telling you something um, and you don't have to be able to verbalise it perfectly or convince anyone. If you just feel it yourself, like just roll with that, Yeah. Thank you so much, Laura. I've kept you for over two hours and I said to you, oh, probably about an hour. Uh, and now we've gone like Joe Rogan experience length of episode. Um, I, so I, I'm going to promote this at the start of the episode as well in case people haven't made it this far. <laughs> um, but, so I'll, I'll say it at the start when I add an intro before I publish this. But you've got a new podcast and if you've liked the way Laura expresses herself because she's amazing at that and her insights, do you want to tell me what the podcast is and what it's about? Yes. Um, so my podcast is called The Serial Monogamist yeah. and it's about essentially about my relationships of which I've had many. <laughs> <laughs> Lots of learning experiences. Um so, yeah, it's really just me reflecting on um, each of my ex-boyfriends and what I've learned from each of those relationships. Yeah, um, yeah and there'll just be a, a couple of different segments. One of the segments will be me sort of talking about some of the psychology behind or concepts that are related to relationships. Sometimes they're psychology related. Sometimes they're, you know, related to other random things that I've read um, that like sometimes they're scientific concepts. Sometimes they're just things that resonated with me personally. Um, 
yeah, so that's that's pretty much it. So yeah, the, the serial first one, the first one will be out in the next day or two. Yes, so um, probably like eight pm tomorrow. So yeah, eight pm Monday. So that's kind Australian of the Eastern standard time. <laughs> yeah, so that's sort of the um, time slot that I'll be aiming for every probably, week. So in about twenty four hours every Monday, or so. Yes. Yes. She's not like me. She doesn't just release them whenever the fuck she feels like it. She actually has like a plan and process. <laughs> well, I have um, a plan but, now, but it doesn't mean like I'm going to stick to it. So, <laughs> but I, I, there's a lot of like junk out there with podcasts, and I, like, I'm so glad that you're starting one because very few people can explain things or express themselves um, as well as you in terms of voices. And I think like your podcast is going to be awesome. So Aww, I will. Thank you. I will promote it again. Thank you so much for coming on, Laura. I know I've kept you for two hours and you've had to like fucking come up with all of these concepts and ideas <laughs> like um, when this is your like job as well. So you're probably like, oh, fuck. But um. <laughs> Thank you so much and yeah, I will write this up now and then I will call you on Facebook. Yes, sounds good. Hey, bye. bye. <laughs>